How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 151 of X-Lapsed, uh, where we're going to read a book that, uh, despite not having any official King in Black branding on it, is uh, very much a King in Black tie-in book. Uh, we're not going to be talking too much about King in Black on this program, at least uh, I don't think we're going to be, but uh, we're going to start today by taking a look at Sword, Volume 2, Number 2. It's had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called In the Dark. Written by Al Ewing with art by mm, Valerio. We're going to say Sheedy. Um, colors, Mardi Gracia, Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Don Muller, Head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale January 13th of 2021. And we open, and again... We don't have any official King in Black branding. There is that big red spider on the cover, but uh, no branding. Despite of that, we right away open with uh, King in Black stuff here. Uh, What we see is a shadowy figure looking over a symbiote goo-covered Manhattan and telling a bad joke. And we're going to find out who this is by the end of the issue, so don't you worry none. I initially thought that this was the big bad of the King in Black event, Null, but uh, quickly realized that they... Probably wouldn't waste him in an X-book. From here, we get our double-page spread, a roll call, and cred. We're going to be paying attention to the following characters. Wizkid, Manifold, Cortez, Frenzy, Random, Mentalo, Magneto, Pybok, Sunfire, and Brand. Back to comics and back to the peak. Abigail Brand is checking in with the members of her six... And basically giving us, you know, all us poor, contextless, king-and-black avoiders the quick and dirty on what's going on. We learn that the Earth is surrounded by a dome made out of organic clintar, which is the stuff that makes up the Venom symbiote. This, as you might imagine, is a problem. Especially when you're on a satellite trying to communicate with that same domed Earth. And so we get a sit-rep from the Six. WizKid comments that Krakoan gateways appear to be functional and suggests that maybe they can find a way to communicate through them. Manifold states that since they have a Krakoan gateway on the peak, they might just be the only way on or off the Earth. And I mean, we are discounting a lot of other portals because as we're finding out, there are a lot of damn portals on that planet. Fabian Cortez is just chilling out, and he really doesn't like it when his sector is referred to as the Yellow Sector because he prefers gold. Frenzy and Pybok are in touch with the Galactic Council and are also trying to get a hold of Alpha Flight. Why Alpha Flight? Who knows? Uh, Let's just be happy they don't get a hold of them, because that would probably be another book that we would have to uh, bloat this line with. Then the security team, which is headed up by Kid Cable, appears to be only static, and uh, we'll soon find out why. 
The final member is introduced as Mentalo. And he's currently sitting on a toilet, laboring over a bowel movement while reading a magazine about tanks. Wonder if that'll come around. Well, the tanks, that is. Now, Mesmero, uh, he must have been that redacted member of the Six from last issue, which... Gotta say, it's kind of a letdown, right? I mean, why bother redacting a goofball like friggin' Mentalo? It seems like, uh... Eh, yeah, it's not gonna pay off. Anyway, he and Brand get into a bit of a back and forth here. Uh, he suggests that uh, she might be his not be his biggest fan. And I mean, he shouldn't need mental powers to make that guess about anybody, much less Abigail Brand. Now we go to an info page, and it's some personnel notes on Mentalo from Abigail Brand. And uh, it's, you know, it's a look at his history and a hint that uh, she might have more in mind for him than even he knows. We next jump to the jump suite, where uh, the members of the crew are preparing to head through the gateway to Krakoa to, you know, lend a hand. Frenzy informs Brand that she'll be bringing Pybok as her non-mutant guest. And uh, don't nobody tell poor uh, Kane Marco about this guest pass thing. It would just break his heart. Now, Brand isn't so sure that this is a good idea. But Frenzy's able to convince her otherwise, as if... If Pybok, a representative of the Kree-Skrull Alliance, was able to witness mutants saving the galaxy from the alien threat of the week, it might buy them some goodwill. And so Brand gives them the thumbs up. Frenzy gives Pybok a riff on the old welcome to the X-Men, hope you survived the experience, because of course she does. That's a X-Men cheap pop number one. Number two's coming, and you'll know it when you hear it. Now, Fabian Cortez saunters up to ask where WizKid is, suggesting he's probably off wasting time somewhere. What he's actually doing is shooting space dragons, while trying to figure out a way to link a Blue Marvel portal to a Krakoan gate to facilitate communication. Back to the bridge, the rest of the sword reps prepare to head to Krakoa. And we've got Random here, representing the security team, since Kid Cable is nowhere to be found. Mentalo and Brand have another run-in, which ends with her asking him to read her surface thoughts and uh, look to look for something called Protocol V. Or maybe it's Protocol 5, because that's uh, the world we're living in now. Now, he finds this unthinkable, and yet Brand thought it, so I guess not. She fills him in a little bit on Null and how at this point he's already murdered a dozen or so populated worlds. And so, they gotta stop him before he successfully does the same to Earth. We jump ahead, and now we're on Krakoa. And the Swordsers arrive, and the place is covered in snow. You know, there's uh, no sunlight peeking in with the big goopy dome overhead, so we get snow. We see Magneto, Banshee, and Sunfire fighting uh, one of those goopy space dragons. Now, Sunfire doesn't take too kindly to seeing a scroll on their shores, and so he attempts to show off and take the dragon down. He, okay, well, he doesn't succeed. As a matter of fact, the dragon makes ridiculously short work of him. He's thrown to the ground, both legs broken, and some ribs as well. Pybox suggests that he grow some wings to go and aid the fallen mutant. Frenzy suggests a fastball special would be quicker, to which Fabian Cortez just puts his hands up and says, I got this. And so he heads over to amplify Shiro's powers, which sends him soaring in a blaze through the dragon, and apparently either through the goop dome as well, or manifesting a tiny sun with his power, because after this, the sunlight begins to pour in. And uh, Mr. Cortez is quite pleased with himself. 
Next up, an info page, and it's more personnel notes from Abigail Brand, this time with a focus on our man Cortez. It's basically Brand recognizing Cortez as something of a necessary evil. You know, she doesn't really care for him, and not many do, and she would like to replace him with someone a little less problematic. However, due to his unique abilities, well, that's a short list indeed, and we're going to go through a few of these names to find out just how short it is. Now, we do get that list of potential replacements, and they're all kind of, eh, you know. We got Michael Nolan. Now, Michael Nolan first appeared in the very same issue as Apocalypse, way back in X-Factor number 5, cover dated June 1986. Now, he and his wife Susan, who is also mentioned in passing on this info page, uh, she would be killed by Stinger from the Alliance of Evil, they were heroin addicts. Uh, Michael was drafted in the Vietnam War, and this is where his powers would manifest. He could amplify the powers of those around him, kind of like Cortez. Now, you see, Nolan isn't a great candidate, as he, A, doesn't really seem to want to work with Krakoa, and B, can't control his powers. The next potential replacement is Boost. This is Morlock, a member of the Gene Nation, uh, who first appeared in Uncanny X-Men Annual 97, back in October of 1997 cover. Now, he's a power amper who is depowered by... Well, everybody's favorite, the Scarlet Witch on M-Day. Uh, he's likely since been repowered because he's in this list, but uh, the thing of it is, is he can only amp up one mutant at a time. Brand still likes the cut of Boost's jib and would like to consider him for the security team, just not as a replacement for Cortez. We got Mr. M. Now, Mr. M is an Omega-level um, Omega mutant who first appeared in District X number 2, it's an August 2004 cover date, and he has a whole lot of useful powers here. He is uh, he's a force to be reckoned with, as the Omega you know, label might, uh, might imply. Unfortunately, his current whereabouts are unknown, but the fact that he's being mentioned here, maybe we'll see him sooner than later. Now, the last potential replacement is our old friend Redacted. Uh, we don't get much. We do know that this one is a woman. And there's something having to do with whatever the hell a snark war is. Which, uh, wow, that kind of sounds like the most current year Marvel thing, doesn't it? Snark war? It's too bad Bendis is gone. This seems like it'd be right up his alley. Okay, from here we go back to comics, and we're into the hatchery. Now, Mentalo rolls in with his think tank, which is, uh, you know, he was reading that tank magazine, and his gimmick is that he, he had this big tank for a little bit there. And he does so to, I guess, rescue them? I don't know. He welcomes them to Protocol V, or 5. I don't know. I mean, the 5 are here, so it might be the 5. Back outside, Fabian Cortez and Magneto have a less frosty reunion than they had last issue. Now, Magneto's pleased that Fabes was able to help Shiro defeat the dragon. Cortez decides to uh, maybe play into this and attempt to buy himself a little bit of Krakoan clout. He asks uh, maybe for an audience with the Quiet Council about some changes to policy. Maybe some changes having to do with the flat scans. Which, in case you didn't know, uh, that's nasty mutant speak for human. Magneto agrees, which, I don't know, seems a little weirdish, doesn't it? Well, Frenzy watches this whole thing play out and paraphrases our theme song. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Just then, from out of the gate, emerges a great, big, goopy, symbiotic hand. We flip the page and find out that it belongs to a venomized Kid Cable. And he takes us home with a, quote, To me, my X-Men. 
barf. Um, in case you missed it, there, there's the second uh, X-Men Cheap Pop. Oy. Well, that'll do it for the issue. Next episode, we have an issue of Cable that, uh, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, uh, I would say that it probably won't have him strutting around with a red spider on his chest. So uh, let's hear it for linear storytelling, huh? But uh, that's a discussion for another time. Now, let's talk about this uh, King in Black sort of, kind of, non-tie-in tie-in. Well, you know, I, I don't know that I'd ever say that I'm a exceptionally brilliant or observant fellow. I can get by. I can get by. Uh, but uh, maybe I'm not the most uh, brilliant person on the planet, but I can't be the only one who uh, has noticed that every single Marvel event is the same damn story, right? I mean, we have alien threats threatening to take over the world. They very nearly do. And then they don't. Uh, is this what the movies are like? I have to assume that this is what the movies are like, and this is what they think readers want to read four or five times a year. I don't. <laughs> and uh, despite really enjoying this issue, mostly because of the character bits here, I, I have to hand it to Ewing. The uh, He's killing it with the characterization here. Having a really good time with this odd and uh, you know somewhat obscure cast that uh, that he's assembled. But I have absolutely no inkling to dive into King and in Black after reading this. Uh, this just feels like this is just another round of Empire with a you know a different coat of paint. And while it makes sense for Sword to be all wrapped up in this, considering they are you know kind of the space team, I hate the fact that we're going to be wasting you know the next like three issues of this book that we just launched on King and Black stuff. I can only hope that uh, being a part of the crossover does something to zhuzh the sales a little bit, so at least there'll be, like, a reason for it. And, I mean, of course, that is the reason. We, we've we talked about sales charts uh, not too long ago on the show, and we know that tie-ins do uh, quite a bit better than just the ordinary book here. So, gotta assume that's what they're doing it for. I still don't really like it, uh, since... I mean, we're still learning these characters. We're still. Lear- I mean, we don't even know what their their main focus is just yet. Uh, we have a sort of an idea that they go and they get little MacGuffins from different little pockets of space and reality, but we don't know why. We don't know what it is they're looking for. We don't know what these things turn into, like these little weird shapes that they find. We don't know what they become or what their purpose is. And here we're just taking a uh, we're taking a three at least a three issue break from. The ongoing story that we just established to dip into some wider Marvel Universe stuff here. It reminds me of like when the Image guys were all trying to start their own little like pocket universes here, and you'd have like the big push for Wildstorm, and they would do like the Wildstorm Rising crossover, which would like launch like three or four new books, <laughs> and you'd get these brand new books like a Grifter volume, and like the first two parts of it'll be part of a crossover. It just it just doesn't seem doesn't seem like the wisest way to launch something uh, with an eye toward longevity. Which, for all we know, there's you know no eye on longevity for the sword book. It might just be a let's get while the getting's good and let's bloat this thing till it uh, until it bursts. But taking the uh, king and blackness out of it, let's uh, talk about some of the character moments in this book here. I think. Uh, I think Fabian Cortez is uh, kind of becoming the uh, Dakin Dakin of this book, where initially it was, you know, very, very off-putting and very annoying, but he's got a charm to him. Um, 
I'm really curious as to what his uh, new uh, potential policy against the uh, you know the old flat scans are, and I do like him. You know, kind of just being what he always has been, just like a real suck-up. He's starting to weasel his way back into Magneto's good graces here, uh, despite the fact that I think even Frenzy pointed it out. Every time they've associated, you know, Fabian Cortez has stabbed Magneto in the back repeatedly. And uh, maybe Magneto's a guy who likes to have his ego stroked. Maybe he is given Cortez just enough rope to hang himself. Uh, I think it's. I think either way, it's going to be a lot of fun seeing this play out. We had the uh, Mentalo reveal, which, if you guys could see my uh, my script for this, you'd see how many times I referred to him as Mesmero, even though he is most certainly not <laughs> Mesmero. But I've been conflating the two this entire time, just uh, trying to remember. What Mesmero did, and I mean, Mesmero and Mentalo are two different characters, so it's uh, a lot of my notes were just like really, really rubbishy because I forgot which one was which. But the Mentalo reveal here, I feel like, um, with a lot of the redactions we get in these books, because I mean, we do get info pages in just about every issue, and there have been a number of redactions along the way. And often they are uh, underwhelming, and they don't really deliver uh, like a like a big wow surprise. And this is another one of those here. I'm curious as to what um, what they've got planned for Mentalo, and uh, so far he's he's come across as just another interesting and uh, sort of obscure character. So I've got all the faith in the world that they're going to make this work, despite the fact that the reveal in and of itself didn't exactly. Knock my socks off. We also had the Kid Cable Venomized reveal at the very end. And I don't know if it's just because I just recently read the Extermination miniseries from a few years back. um, Shared some similarities, the opening pages of that, with this page here. So it, it, unless that's just me noticing a coincidence, it just uh, really... It told me that it was Cable right off the bat. So it wasn't too much of a surprise when uh, the revelation happened. Then again... I mean, his was the only um, communication that was static, so it stands to reason, especially if we know what we're getting out of these King and Black tie-ins, where it always seems like somebody's getting venomized. Uh, the only other one that I've read has been the Deadpool issue, where our very favorite, Jeff the Landshark, got himself venomized, and that was uh, quite madcap and quite fun, but... Uh, I guess the jury's still out on how Cable will handle his uh, venomization. I'm not even sure after reading the uh, the solicits for the final issue of Cable if this is going to be the Cable we'll be dealing with from uh, that point on. We, For all we know, we might get the old man back. So uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, overall, despite the fact that this didn't exactly make me want to run out and read more uh, King in Black, it did make me want to come back next time for more swords. So... Uh, I guess that's a that's a good thing, right? That is a uh, that is a win for uh, for this book and for this program. So, if you're not reading Sword, you you might dig it. You might just dig it. Uh, if you're following along with King in Black, you'll probably get something more out of this. And if anyone out there wants to fill me in on some King in Black context, so I don't actually have to go and read it, please feel free to do so. Uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag where people did reach out and talk to me. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 15. He says, This issue makes me wonder if Ben Percy has discovered X-Lapsed and is responding to our comments. 
All the way along, I've been saying that the other characters would not let Beast behave as if, as if he is without criticism. And finally, we're seeing some pushback. I still wonder why Hank is being given absolute power by Xavier. It seems odd for anyone to be set above the five who are integral to the Krakoan project. Also, does Xavier have the authority to place X-Force at such a high position without a council vote? I can't imagine a mutant CIA being popular amongst the council. And those are very good points. I'm trying to remember if the Quiet Council has chimed in about X-Force, because I think that's where we originally heard the whole mutant CIA thing was on the, the floor of the Quiet Council. I don't remember the the bits and bobs of the scene, but I, I do remember they were they were there for it. But it does seem strange here that, I mean, X-Force can do whatever they want, uh, up, up to and including, you know, flat-out murder. So it's a very... Very weird here, and they can, like you said here, they can supersede the five. You know, they can they can move people around the queue. They can make take people out of the queue. It's uh, it's very strange here, and uh, the I believe this was an info page in that issue of X Force where the five were kind of just making their uh, objections or challenges with the current situation known, and Xavier's just like, yeah, it sucks to be you. Uh, <laughs> you do what Beast tells you to do, and. Uh, Ugh, weird. Uh, Damien continues, Colossus accepting his treatment is an interesting turn. He's never been presented as motivated by revenge, but I'm surprised he didn't smack Hank on his way out of the cave. And it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, I came into the X-Books, uh, 1991, 1992, where Colossus was basically a kind of a milk toast, and he was always, you know, just very, very sad. So this actually read... Quite well to me, just Colossus going along with what he's being told and uh, really just not putting up a fuss. I could almost picture him like all slump-shouldered walking past Hank and then just uh, going to sit in front of an empty canvas for a while while he, uh, I mean, he, he still doesn't see his sister out of the corner of his eye every 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 so often because she's alive again. But uh, that's the Colossus I grew up with, just someone who always saw Ilyana out of the corner of his eye and just... Uh, would sit in front of blank canvases while basically talking about how sad he is. Uh, Damien continues, Overall, it's one of my favorite issues of X-Force yet, as it's focused on character, and it's another post-crossover quiet issue. It's hitting some of my expectations of an X-Book. The art is also fantastic. I particularly love the scene of Domino and Black Tom on the beach. Kassara really is excellent. And yeah, the art here is is really, really good. I, I can't say that I'm too excited for... Um, a battle with a, a sea creature, but the uh, the path getting there was very very pretty to look at, and uh, that scene at the end in particular is was very very strong. And I mean, Kasara, uh, his worst page is excellent. So this was really really good stuff. Um, and you're right, this was another you know post crossover issue where we're kind of kind of letting the pieces get back into place and kind of we're like we're dropping out of that. Crossover gear and we're slowing down a little bit And we're We're trying to clean up what came before Which was unfortunate that the Crossover interrupted just so much But it was a goodie It was a goodie I can't say that I'm too pleased with uh, Beast's development And I'm hoping that there's even more push up, Pushback to come Because I mean he uh, He got away with murder here <laughs> And I, I don't like our heroes getting away with murder No matter how they spin it it just doesn't, uh, it's one of those things that's just never going to sit right with me. We just saw 
uh, the crucible issue of Marauders where Storm killed Kalisto. And, uh, of course, Kalisto asked for it, but it doesn't change the fact that one of our heroes killed someone else. I'm just, I'm never going to be on board with that. These, I mean, these guys aren't the Punisher. <laughs> it's, and I don't even like the Punisher all that much, but it's interesting. Now, Damien wraps up with, So until we discover that Beast has been mesmerized by a time-displaced J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> make mine X-lapsed. Well, thank you so much, Damien, for uh, chatting us up about X-Force 15. I gotta say, uh, the Reign of X books are starting out a lot hotter than the Dawn of X books did. I don't know if maybe maybe I'm just really, really tired from the whole X-Attends thing and anything else would seem, like, amazing, but... Uh, Outside of Excalibur, which kept us in Otherworld, I, I don't think there's been a bad issue yet. And Excalibur wasn't even a bad issue. It was just more Otherworld, and uh, I think we need a break from the place. Uh, but thanks again, Damien. Uh, next, we got Evan talking about New Mutants number 14. He says, This one had it all. Rod Reese art, Petra sober, Professor X being a jerk in an info page, Cosmar's back, Questionable disregard for the value of life thanks to the resurrection protocols and Scout practically reading from our mailbag. When you noted that the New Mutants had no rep on the Quiet Council, I wanted to nominate Scout. Or at least get a scene of her and Orphan Maker asking the Quiet Council the tough questions. I hope you're wrong about her impending demise, but it does make a lot of sense. Now, I I hope I'm... You know, it's weird. I hope I'm wrong and I hope I'm right. Um, I, I... I don't know the Scout character or the Honey Badger character or whatever she was known as. I this is these are the first issues that I'm actually getting to know the character. I I think the only other issue I read with her in it was the X Men Red Annual, where she was basically just a, a Jean Grey fangirl. She really didn't have much of a character outside of just being the just happy to be there character. So here, I mean, we're getting a little bit of depth on her, um, and it's. She's asking the really tough questions here, and it's so crazy how a character that I just dismissed as being a silly, you know, haha, lol, sort of random character is uh, one of the more grounded characters we have in these books because for them, this is uh, a whole different sort of story, isn't it? Uh, we don't. She doesn't know if she'll be brought back, so death for her is final, and uh, so the stakes are real for her. Um, her entire fate lies in the hands of, I mean, the Quiet Council, and, and uh, you take the best member of the Quiet Council, and do you, do you trust them? <laughs> I mean, you'd think, like, maybe the one of the more virtuous members of the Quiet Council would have been Storm, and she just oversaw torture. So, uh, I don't know that we have that much faith in the Quiet Council, and I don't, I don't think we're supposed to have much faith in the Quiet Council as readers, because I mean, as Isco put it, in that recent issue of X-Men, these are children running a, a child's government. And it, uh, their naivete and lack of experience is really at the forefront here. So to have a character like Scout, and as you mentioned, Orphan Maker, asking these questions that nobody else wants to ask, probably out of fear that they'd look silly asking. So we have these characters who... I mean, Orphan Maker, we can, we can say Orphan Maker is kind of a silly character. We don't know... Everything about him, but from what we do know, he is, uh, you know, he's the one who wants to suckle off of a, a giant egg. So he's a silly character. But here, we have him asking questions like, "Well, if Empath's dead and he's back, well, does that mean he never died?" And it's like, "Well, no, he died. He just uh, it, this just looks like him. So we're all going to pretend it's him." 
We're seeing like a whole different dimension to these things that I think we're just supposed to accept. And a lot of the characters are just accepting it, which is really uh, something special about these books where we get these things that, that we are, since it's comics, we take a lot of it on face value because it's comics. Ca- characters come back to life all the time, even without resurrection protocols. So we don't really even think about it past the fact that, okay, they're dead, now they're back. We take these characters like Orphan Maker and Scout who just have some questions that everybody else is afraid to ask. And it adds a whole different layer to it, and it's, uh, it's really, really wonderful stuff. Now, Evan continues... I enjoyed the Hickman space stuff too, but to me, this is the best issue of the series so far. Well, except maybe for number 13, not to beat that dead horse again. Now, 13 is the X of Swords crossover issue with uh, Cypher and Magic in training. I'm honestly not sure what I would say is my favorite issue of New Mutants so far, because I did enjoy the uh, the initial Hickman and uh, Reese run, uh, the one that was you know interrupted by the farm story. And I also really, really liked this issue. So, uh, and I didn't outright dislike issue 13. I just felt it was uh, some well-trodden ground just being trodden again. But uh, this was a very, very strong issue. Evan continues, Danny using her power to counsel karma seemed like a throwback to her job as a counselor for the initiative back in the day. Even if it was more coincidence than callback, it was a nice scene. Oh wow, I can't remember the last time I thought of the initiative. You all remember that? That post-Civil War thing? Ugh. Um, I don't remember much about the initiative, and I don't remember Danny being a part of it. Uh, Civil War came after House of M. Was she depowered during House of M? I want to say she was, so maybe that's why she was, uh, she was acting as a counselor there. But I, I could be completely mistaken. I conflate so much of that stuff from uh, the mid-2000s. Uh, Evan continues. Apologies if these two, these next two items have been brought up in previous mailbags. I'm on Marvel Unlimited release schedule these days. First one, did I misinterpret or did the intro suggest that the Shadow King is a separate entity from Farouk? Has this been addressed before? Now, I'm not really a huge Shadow King scholar, but I want to say that the Shadow King is not always uh, with Farouk. I, I want to say that the Shadow King was actually linked to... Was it Psylocke? I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I should have done my homework on this one, but I think the Shadow King is a separate entity from Farouk. I might be mistaken. If anybody knows better, please, please write in and let me know. Uh, Evan continues, Wolfbane spit, splitting into multiple wolves is apparently her secondary mutation. I had to look it up when they introduced her on Puzzle Quest, and that was one of her special moves. Maybe they should make a rule that only Morrison can give secondary mutations. That I didn't know. I didn't know that she had a secondary mutation here. Um, so that makes a whole lot more sense, right? <laughs> that uh, she was able to split into those wolves coming out of uh, the, the magic portal. So that makes more sense. So thank you for giving me a little bit of context there. Now Evan wraps up with, Until Scout splits into multiple little X-23s to form her own voting block on the Quiet Council, make mine X-lapsed. Well, we gotta wonder, would, would those multiple little X-23s be uh, subject to the uh, Resurrection Protocol? Uh, I, guess if they, I guess if they get enough of them, they can overturn that vote. Maybe we'll even have Madeline Pryor walking around the island again. But uh, thank you so much, Evan, for writing in. I really, really appreciate it. 
Now that's going to do it for today's show. If you'd like to write in, be part of the mailbag, or just say hello, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also find X-Lapsed Origins over there. These are a series of articles about some seminal moments in X-History that are still relevant, or at least mentioned in passing, during our current year stuff. Starting out with an extended look at the early Captain Britain stories, uh, the Dave Thorpe into Alan Moore where we learn a whole lot about Otherworld, uh, Mad Jim Jaspers, the Furies, Saturnine, and of course Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother, Brian. So you can pop over to Chris's on Infinite Earths for that. There's also xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where you can find all the uh, the archives for this program and uh, in a nice, easy, digestible uh, way. At least I think so. Uh, You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, where we've just had uh, an influx of a few new members. So thank you guys so much for popping in and keeping the rest of us company. It's it's really, really cool to have a little community there. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can pop over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com or look us up on any of your noise aggregation devices and applications. We'll be there for you with thousands of hours of comics commentary content. But that'll do it for today, and as a plane flies overhead, I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 160 of X-Lapsed, where we're dipping our toes back into the uh, King in Black crossover event. The, uh, you know, the latest in Marvel series of um, alien invasion stories that we can't seem to get away from, no matter how hard we try, and no matter how little we care. But uh, 
let's get into it here. We got King in Black, Marauders, number one. This had an April 2021 cover date. Stories called Queen in Red. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Luke Ross. Colors, Carlos Lopez, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky, cover price $5, of course. And this one went on sale February 3rd of 2021. So, uh, yeah, a Marauders one-shot for the King in Black event. Um, why this couldn't have just been Marauders number 18? Well, uh, I suppose Marvel realized that people simply following the King in Black event and minis may not have picked this one up. So, uh, here we are. Now we open during the King in Black event, during a time when it would appear as though Earth has fallen to the invading baddies, which is basically the middle section of every Marvel event for the past two decades or so. We can see here that both the Storm Who Laughs and the Cyclops Who Laughs have been uh, venomized, which I'm going to assume happened at some point during the main King in Black event miniseries, and we'll be talking more about this tandem when we cover a pair of issues of Savage Avengers not too long from now. Now, we also get the quick and dirty on Eddie, Eddie Brock being dead, which... I don't know about you guys, really makes me miss the time, like around the turn of the century, when we, as comics readers, all thought we were, like, way too cool and way too sophisticated to give a rat's ass about Venom. I don't usually miss that aspect of the uh, turn of the century, but uh, now I kind of do. Now, we join Kitty and the crew as they're headed into New York to pull a smash and grab. You see, they get in. They grab Scott and Aurora, who are near the top of the Empire State Building at the moment, and then they get the heck out. Pyro and Iceman will pull off a distraction. Kitty and Bishop will do the thing. Before they can, however, they receive a distress call from a passing boat, the Rambling Bird. Now, it's worth noting that, uh, just like in all the King and Black stories, uh, there are a whole bunch of goopy symbiote dragons flying overhead. I think we'll probably wind up calling a lot of these King and Black crossovers uh, maybe like Dragon Sky crossovers? Kind of like, you know, the Red Sky crossovers from Crisis when, like, the the only bit that connects the story to the actual event is the fact that the sky was red. Here, the skies have dragons in it. Uh, who am I kidding? Uh, nobody's ever going to talk about King and Black again after it wraps up. Um, hell, I'm pretty sure at this point I'm the only idiot still referencing Empire, and that ended only a few months ago. Anywho, these dragons are attacking the rambling bird, and so Kitty and the crew decide to lend a hand before sailing into Manhattan. But first, the double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. They were going to be focusing on Bishop. Call Me Kate, Pyro, Iceman, Sage, Emma Frost, Magneto, Beast, Lockheed, and Kalisto. Now back to comics, and our heroes are fighting off the symbiote dragons. Bobby makes an ice ramp to pull off the rescue of the Rambling Bird crew. After loading all the crewmen onto the Marauder, Kitty asks about their cargo. We learn that it's just olive oil, which the captain of the ship, a rapidly sinking ship, quickly dismisses as nothing that can't be grown again. Just then, Bishop hears a faint tapping. Three quick taps, three long taps, and then three more quick taps. Huh. He decides to board the sinking ship to check it out. What he finds down below in the hold are, well, not bottles or crates of olive oil, but people. 
Olive oil is made of people. No, no. Um, uh, the rambling captain is just a big fat liar. He's not. Uh, he's not shipping oils. He's actually a human trafficker. Bishop calls up to the marauders, and Bobby stabilizes the ship before it can sink with an instant iceberg. Kitty sends Lockheed into the sky to hold off the symbiote dragons while she attends to the business at hand, which includes backhanding the lying captain of the Ramblin' Bird. He claims to have been ignorant of his cargo. They don't tell him nothing. But come on, ain't nobody gonna buy that. Now, while Lockheed is attacking the dragons, as Pyro puts it, like a chihuahua at a dog park, which... I can attest to owning a couple of chihuahuas, uh, one of whom only weighs four pounds. Boy, howdy, do they enjoy attacking things far bigger than them. Um, Now, Kitty tells Iceman to escort the traffickers back onto their sinking ship, and the captain cries out that, well, that would be a death sentence. To which it's like, yeah, no, duh. Iceman then tells them that mutants don't believe in the death sentence. Huh. I wonder if they ever put that to a vote. Uh, maybe he's speaking like, you know, the royal we here, you know. This is uh, the current stance of Krakoa, the government. Which, I mean, their actual stance is far more cruel than just killing people. Uh, they'll just stick them in a hole with Sabretooth where they'll just wait forever. It's kind of like the Phantom Zone over at DC, which is most definitely a fate worse than death. Just being there. <laughs> and unable to escape, unable to... Do much of anything for eternity. Anywho, Iceman escorts the baddies through a Krakoan gateway. Remember, humans can pass through so long as they're invited. Uh, Kitty rolls her eyes that she still can't use the gates, but these pieces of human garbage can. Bobby walks them in, checks with Sage for the absolute worst exit point, and then deposits these geeks in the middle of the Namib Desert, about a day's walk from the nearest bit of civilization. Now, lucky for these guys, that Earth's symbiote shell is obscuring the sun, so uh, at least they won't be exposed to that. The captain asks for water, which, I mean, is he really expecting any mercy here? Or was just just a semi-organic way of setting up Bobby to drop a bunch of ice cubes for these goofballs to suck on, because uh, that's exactly what happens. And it's a cute bit, but maybe a little bit forced, a little bit telegraphed. Uh, Back to the boat. Kitty informs the rescued folks that they're going to drop them off in New Jersey. If you remember, they're still en route to New York to save Storm and Cyclops. The rescuees are not wanting to go to New Jersey, which, yeah, I I totally get that. Kitty's all, oh, come on, at least it's not Florida, which I guess is a joke. I don't know, I remember, I I grew up in New York, and everybody wanted to go to Florida. Um, uh, You know, Florida was the destination vacation spot, uh... Then again, maybe everybody did go to Florida, and that's why it's the butt of so many jokes on the internet now. It's uh, almost as ubiquitous as calling people, like calling women Karen, which is also not all that funny. Um, I don't know. Anyway, the hostages, they don't want to go to Jersey. They want to go to Canada. That's where they paid these traffickers to take them before they were, you know, taken hostage. And they're actually kind of demanding about it, you know? I mean, the Marauders just saved these people from drowning, Maybe kind of a teeny-tiny break here. Um, Kitty decides to call into Emma to see what their options are. Hey, I got an idea. I mean, this might be call me crazy, but maybe have Bobby escort the hostages through a gateway to Krakoa, then out another gateway into Canada where they want to go. No? That, that, That won't work? I don't know. Let's make this far more complicated than it needs to be here. 
Kitty tells Emma that she promised the hostages amnesty. So they were pardoned for being taken hostage? Does she mean that she promised them sanctuary? I I don't know. Anyway, Emma reminds Kitty that her objective here was to rescue Scott. Uh, And and Aurora, of course. Um, Magneto enters the quiet council room and asks to be brought up to speed on things. It would seem as though Kitty is asking for permission to let these hostages stay on Krakoa. Uh, why? Uh, whatever the case, it's just not possible. I mean, just ask the poor juggernaut about that. Emma claims to have a plan, which she tells Kitty about, but not us. We'll find out soon enough, though. Whatever it is, though, Kitty sure seems to like the sound of it. It's worth noting that for the duration of this conversation, the Marauders have been fighting off those swirling dragons. We cut over to Pyro, who approaches Bishop. He notices that Bishop is still quite keen on getting to New York, and he wonders if this has, might have anything to do with a secret meeting he may have had with Beast. How Pyro would know about that? Your guess is as good as mine. But it does facilitate a trip into flashback land, where Bishop is told by Beast that, should he not be able to rescue Cyclops and Storm, to, you know, kill them. Which would... You know, matter, if not for the resurrection protocols being a thing. Unless there's a, like an, a certain otherworldly wrinkle attached to being killed while infected with a symbiote? I don't know. Bishop denies everything. He just tells Pyro he's being a paranoid dude. We jump ahead to the Marauder docking at Island M. You know, Magneto's old place here. where This is where the uh, hostages will be kept safe until the symbiote invasion ends. Because, uh, here there be no dragons? Eh? The hostages are welcomed to the island by Callisto, and then they're sheltered by some quick-growing Krakoan foliage and granary. We jump ahead again to the end of the issue here. Now, the woman who used Morse code back on the boat, Nyoka, is skipping stones. I guess she's kind of the de facto leader of the, uh, the hostage crew here. She's approached by Magneto, who tells her that this safe haven comes with only one string attached. Now, once this crisis passes, he would like for her to tell the story of the mercy they were shown from Krakoa. And that's it. Next episode, we are going a little bit off the beaten path and talking about an issue of Runaways. But uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the KIB cash in here for a minute. Um, I want to say right off the bat. I can tell there was a lot of effort taken here to make this story feel both consequential and enjoyable for both the event looky-loos as well as the loyal Marauders readership. And for that, I I commend Jerry Duggan. Um, It's not often that a creator will try to to appease both sides, because, I mean, there are two sides to this. There's three sides to someone who would buy this. You have the the completionist for Marauders, you have the completionist for King and Black, then you have the people who are going to just throw it into a a slab and expect to uh, put their children through college with it. But uh, the first two you can control, sort of, right? I mean, we can't control the marketplace no matter what the, uh, the apps tell us, but I think this did a decent enough job at keeping King and Black readers, the looky-loos, um, satisfied, while also... Moving the Marauder story forward a little bit. Um, I mean, we get Bishop being sort of a double agent for Beast, which we know as readers of Marauders 
Don't know that that'll be so much appreciated or understood by the more casual, looky-loo Marvel fans. Then again, like the skatey eighth death of Eddie Brock isn't likely to do a whole heck of a lot for the X-Fans. I know it really doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. But really, what do we got here? Um, kind of a... Kind of a distraction, right? Um, kind of a half-pregnant sort of a tie-in here. Uh, I mentioned the Red Sky tie-ins from Crisis on Infinite Earths where um, creators really couldn't find a way to organically make the Crisis story fit into their ongoing um, title. And so they just made it so the sky was red. So it was like, hey, yeah, this is happening at the same time. Here we have, you know, a sky full of dragons, and our characters do interact with the dragons here. But I feel like it's almost a little bit of a bait-and-switch here. We got the um, Dark Knight's Metal uh, versions of Storm and Cyclops here. I mean, come on. <laughs> they look just like the the Batman who laughs, right? Uh, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but they look very, very much like the Batman who laughs. So we get the idea that the Marauders are going to rescue them, but they don't. They get uh, circumvented here, and they got to deal with this uh, this passing ship. So it started out, I, you know, I really thought that we were going to deal with actual King and Black stuff here. But no, this is all in the, uh, on the outskirts of it. This is just existing in the world that's affected by King and Black. Which, hey, I'll hand it to them, outside a sword. I don't think we're getting that in any of the X-Books at this point. So, hey, I guess that's something. It's the token, you know, X-Men appearance, or a token X-Men tie-in. I'm just happy it's a single issue, and not a full-blown miniseries like we uh, see from a lot of the titles getting tied into it here. But what we have is a hostage situation, a, uh, you know, human trafficking deal here. And it's pretty cut and dry. You know, the uh, the good guys save the hostages. They send the bad guys off into the desert to fend for themselves. I don't know if there are dragons in the desert. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. I really don't think it matters. But really, not a whole heck of a lot to say. Um, I'm not sure why the hostages needed to be physically taken to Island M rather than just using the gateways. Um, and, you know, why not just take them to Canada like they requested? Which, you know, let's talk about that for a moment. The Marauders saved their lives, and they're being awfully demanding here. What, what a bunch of ingrates, right? I, I don't know. It felt almost, like, aggressive. It's like, no, no, you're not taking us there. You're taking us here. It's like, excuse us? <laughs> we kind of just saved your lives. Oh, boy. Um, weird stuff. Very weird stuff here. Uh, the art. I liked it. It wasn't up to our usual Mateo Lali standards, but it was good stuff. Uh, of note, Kitty did not have any knuckle tats, and that's just fine by me. Um, I guess overall, uh, not a whole lot to say about this one. This was the, the Red Sky crossover with all, you know symbiote dragons instead of redness. Didn't really feel necessary, but, I mean, at the end of the day, Marvel got uh, an extra $5 out of me. And I'm pretty sure that is all they're worried about. So, good on you, Marvel. You won. So, uh, those are my thoughts on this King in Black tie-in. We will be covering a few more King in Black tie-ins as we move forward here. We have a couple issues of Sword. And as mentioned, there are a couple issues of Savage Avengers, which I believe the Cyclops Who Laughs and the Storm Who Laughs are the prime antagonists in that book. So... 
or among the private prime antagonists in that book. Hopefully they don't just appear. Hopefully they actually do something, but we'll have to wait until we get there to find out. Now, before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. It's going to be a short session in the mailbag here. We got a message from Damien. He's talking about, hey, Marauders number 17. He says, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you that I adored Marauders number 17. I've mentioned before that my first issue of Uncanny was was number 211, back during the Mutant Massacre, but it was the following issue that made me love the X-Men. If you check out your Overstreet, Uncanny 212 is known for the first meeting between Wolverine and Sabretooth, but what hooked me was the Storm storyline. We see Storm want to give up her role as team leader as she believes it's her fault that so many people have been injured. She's lost her powers and thinks that, thinks that this made her too weak to lead the X-Men. She runs away and is followed by Callisto, who makes her come back to face her responsibilities. This remains one of my favorite comics of all time, and this issue hits all the same notes as that one. The central question of the necessity of powers remains, as does the meaning of friendship. Callisto feels she needs her powers back, but will only go through the crucible with someone that she trusts. I really got the parallels with Storm's life-death era running through this issue. It had to be Storm, as she will definitely be able to kill her. I could see a powerless Kalisto defeating many powerful characters, just as Storm defeated Cyclops back in Uncanny 201. I disregard the attempted retcon in Inferno. I'm pretty sure she could defeat Fenris also without her powers. Oh man, that retcon, that felt very, very unnecessary. Um, If I'm remembering it right, I believe it was Madeline Pryor kind of like sabotaging Cyclops to get him to... uh, to face his, you know, month-long retirement. Um, so it was more about Madeline getting under Scott's into Scott's head rather than Storm actually managing to uh, to pull off a victory here. And I agree with uh, Damien here. I I disregard that uh, retcon as well. I am not a fan of that. I think it's much more powerful uh, just having Storm, you know, win. It makes it makes everybody look better. You know, even though Cyclops lost here, I feel like. There was a maturation of his character there, where he had to accept that, you know, maybe this, uh, his, maybe his time was was up, at least for the moment, you know, for the big month that he was actually off the board here. And I totally agree here. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, Jerry Duggan really um, paying tribute to everything that happened before, and somehow. Somehow walking that fine line between nostalgia and progression, you know? This isn't just the, uh, the member berries, as, as I've heard people call them, you know? This isn't just fan service. This is stuff that it's referenced to, but not in a way where it insists upon the reference. It's there if you get it. If you don't get it, if you're a new fan or a newer fan, you're not missing much because the story itself is, so, is still so solid. So for folks like us who have been through, you know, the life the life and times of Storm and Callisto, we can appreciate the callback, but also see that it's building to something else. It's building off of the past to progress this story and this relationship, and it's uh, it's just spectacularly done. Uh, Damien continues, "I'm sure it's no accident that Mask, Silver Samurai, and Fenris were chosen, all linked specifically to that life death storyline." Mask was there to witness the first battle between Storm and Callisto. Silver Samurai was involved in the story that led to Storm's new look, and being shot by Fenris led to the events of Life Death 2. They could have chosen anyone from the island to be present, but they chose them. 
And I tell you what, I totally missed the uh, significance of that. And I'm so happy that you brought it up here because really, I mean, I could just repeat what I just said. Um, This is, as I mentioned, you know, you don't have to get the references and you can still enjoy it for what it is. Right here, this, this reference, despite the fact that I read these stories, went right over my head. I didn't put two and two together, but I can still appreciate it. You were able to put all these pieces together and you appreciated it even more. I mean, that's the way these stories should be told. Absolutely. Damien continues, The actual scene in The Crucible is so well done. They've fought before, but always with Storm not using her powers, either as a matter of honor or because they were gone. Storm has all she needs. In their first fight, Storm stabbed Kalisto in the heart, but this time she takes Kalisto's heart in her hand and kills her quietly. The disappointment on the faces of Fenris that this was a gentle death makes it feel like Storm has defeated them again. Excellent point. Excellent point. And something, you know, another connection that I missed out on here, despite the fact that, I mean, I I believe I just referenced... I think I actually referenced the battle between Storm and Marrow when we talked about uh, this issue of Marauders. I, I called back to that one because... That had Storm actually ripping... I mean, this was the 90s version of, uh, of the event, right? 80s, The 80s version, Kalisto gets stabbed in the heart. The 2020 version, Kalisto, you know, is basically shocked. Her heart was shocked. The 1990s, though, we ripped the heart out of the body. <laughs> and that's what Storm did with Marrow. And uh, despite the fact that I linked that to it, I, I totally missed the uh, significance of the original fight there. And yes, uh, very... Very good scene. I still, I still feel weird that Storm killed somebody. I still have trouble with that. Um, I, that's one of those things. I mean, even though it was a mercy in a way, it was a request. It's still, I mean, she's still a killer. It's, it's a. I don't know. I feel weird about that. Uh, Damien continues. I have seen people who read the intimacy of the fight between Storm and Callisto as a sign that they have a sexual relationship. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I prefer to see them as friends. A non-sexual reading actually adds to the poignancy as it's much harder to hurt a friend than to hurt an ex-lover. You really see Storm's mercy and grief in that scene. Lolly and Delgado really get the mood right. I agree. I agree. Um, the fact that Storm and Callisto are friends or uh, have this respect for one another, um, they have this bond... That it's it's even it's harder to put into words than to say that they are lovers. I mean that's simple. That's all. That's almost simplifying it or oversimplifying it. They have a respect, a friendship, and a mutual admiration for one another, and I think that's why Callisto came to Storm to do her this um, kindness, and why Storm, despite not wanting to do it, ultimately came around to doing it here. Uh, I feel like any time... I mean, we talked about the the Wolverine and Cyclops joke back in... uh, I think it was actually the first Crucible issue, uh, X-Men number 7, where, you know, Scott and a Speedo, ooh, who could turn that down? And people just ran with that because, you know, people want to see what they want to see. And uh, I guess what gets the clicks gets the clicks. But I agree with Damien here. I I like seeing Storm and Kalisto as peers, as friends, as... uh, as people who respect one another to the point where they would do things like this for each other, despite what it might do to them internally, what it might do to them, to their spirit, to their soul, if that's your thing, you know, um, 
they're still there to do this. Uh, they can still count on one another in that way. Damien continues, I should probably mention some of the other stuff this issue had, like building the anticipation for the Hellfire Gala and the Madripoor stuff, but for me it was all about Storm and Callisto. This issue succeeded in making the Crucible an emotional event, where it had previously been more of a philosophical question. Maybe this is because of my history with the X-Men and these particular characters, but I really think it's there in Duggan's story. He has an ability to get to the heart of the characters that make his work stand out against the the coolness of Hickman. I almost said coldness of Hickman, but uh, I think they both work. (laughs) In the X-Men Crucible issue, we were questioning why the characters were doing what they were doing, but here we have no doubt. We can still question the rights and wrongs of their actions, but everything is believable. Outstanding. And I think you put it into the perfect words right there, words that I was searching for and unable to to find. We can still question the rights and wrongs. I've mentioned just a couple moments ago, Storm killed somebody. Storm murdered somebody. We can still question the right and the wrong of that, but... The story as written and the relationships involved and the history involved makes everything believable. It's, uh, you know, we talk about the, I mean, Damien mentions it right here, the heart of the characters here. And that is one of those intangibles that we talk about a lot on this program here. Which stories have heart, which stories maybe don't. Um, And Marauders, uh, time in and time out, it has tremendous heart. It has tremendous heart. These characters are believable. The uh, the scenes feel lived in, you know, uh, because, hey, you know, a lot of us have lived through these scenes with these characters. Like Damien said here, we have a history with these characters. And um, sometimes, you know, I, we talk about seeing patterns where you want to see them. Sometimes the patterns are just there because we're so familiar, so intimately familiar with these characters. And... Uh, Duggan is one of the handful of writers that respects and appreciates that and uh, celebrates it. He doesn't mock you for caring about the characters so much. Instead, he invites it. And it's, uh, and I mean, I'm projecting 100% here, but that's the feeling I get. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a good feeling to have about a book. Now, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until my arms get replaced by tentacles. Make mine ex-lapsed. And uh, if you don't want to know what that's a reference to, that is the awful <laughs> Chris Claremont Excalibur run where um, I believe it was like Professor X and Magneto went to the ruins of Genosha and uh, we're like finding survivors who would somehow manage to, you know, survive there. And Callisto was either there or she just showed up there. And instead of having arms, she had tentacles. So... It was unfortunate. It was not a pleasant look, but uh, thankfully we are past that. <laughs> now, thank you so much for writing such a wonderful email about such a challenging, challenging issue here, and such a, uh, as you put it here, a very, you know, an intimate issue. So I really, really appreciate you writing in to share your thoughts about that, Damien. So thank you so much. Um, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts about well, just about anything. Feel free to reach out. You can find me pretty easily. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes and X-Lapsed Origins over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. For just the program, you can go to xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. It's a fairly easy way to navigate through 
all 160 episodes of the program and all of the Sunday specials. You can find us on Facebook. Chat us up there. 90s X-Men is our little group having some fun conversations there right now. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can pop over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available on all your noise aggregation thingamabobs. But uh, that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 162 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, today, X-Lapsed is half-vaxxed. I just uh, got my first dose of the vaccine this morning, and um, I was a little bit nervous about it because uh, I heard some folks say that uh, it really hurt, you know? I had some bad pains and uh, fevers and just uh, really showing symptoms here, and... uh, I'm happy to report that I have uh, no pain, uh, but I do I do have some lethargy. I'm very, very tired. Um, it all hit at once. Uh, I was fine for probably like an hour, and then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, the eyes grew heavy, the front of my head, and I, I have a fairly large head, I suppose, but the front of my head was especially heavy. And uh, yeah, I was very, very tired, and still am. And uh, unfortunately, it's uh, Excalibur Day. So I'm not sure there's going to be anything to uh, really excite me or get me worked up. So uh, let's get into it. Today, we're taking a look at Excalibur Volume 4, number 18. Now, this had an April 2021 cover date. Story's called Mad Women. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshanaga. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $4. This one went on sale February 10 of 2021. Now, before we get into the issue itself, um, a few episodes back, I talked about uh, 
I believe it was the first issue of X-Men after uh, wrapping the Festival of Swords here. It has the has Cyclops on the cover, and it also, I made note that there are like the eyes of Krakoa looking down on Cyclops. This is the other cover where the eyes of Krakoa are looking down. Um, the cover is, you know, our main team, Sans Betsy, because Betsy's missing, of course. Uh, then they're kind of shadowed or hovered over by members of the Quiet Council, and then they're kind of hovered over by the Eyes of Krakoa. So, don't know if this is intentional or just a coinkydink. Um, I mean, then again, it's a current year cover, so how much stock can we put into it anyway? Uh, I'm just happy it's not, uh, you know, Rogue just running at the camera with uh, speed lines around her. I, I suppose that's, uh, you know, thank, thank whatever for whatever miracles here. But... Let's get into the book itself. We open in Otherworld. Of course we do. We're at the Starlight Citadel in the throne room of her royal wyness, who uh, looks kind of like a royal wino at this point. There's several empty uh, glasses at her feet. And I tell you, I truly miss the days when literally years would go by between instances wherein Saturnine would even go through my mind, much less appear on panel. But here we are. Her fish-faced aide is there to deliver her tea, as well as a letter from the Krakoans. Now, she orders Real, or Rill, R-Y-L, the fish-faced woman, whose name I hadn't bothered to commit to memory yet, as I was hopeful we were done with Otherworld by now, but, uh, alas, no. Uh, she orders Rill to fetch her quill pen so that she might compose a response. Now, the gimmick here is that the Krakoans are reaching out for some aid, probably Betsy-related aid. Saturnine, who, uh, well, spells her own name incorrectly in her response, uh, writes them a letter basically blowing them off. She says that all inquiries from them should come via Captain Britain. But, you know, Betsy Britain's whereabouts and whatabouts are kind of why they're writing in the first place. So we got ourselves a, an otherworld standoff, I suppose. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Today's characters include Betsy Britton, Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Rachel Summers, Emma Frost, Captain Avalon, Maggie Braddock, and that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. We return to comics at the Braddock Lighthouse. Rogue is chatting up Rachel about this weird new lady of the water, Betsy, who appeared at the end of last issue. She's apparently been here for like two days now, just staring into the drink. Rogue wonders if this might mean it's not their Betsy. Or Ma Betsy, as Rogue puts it. And you know, I, I really don't remember these two being all that close. Like, uh, they were teammates, and teammates for a while, but I never really saw them as friends. Um, this story and this volume seems to be going out of its way to convince us otherwise. Uh, doesn't feel legit, though. Now, Rachel posits that from everything she's been able to glean, which isn't all that much, this is the real Betsy because she's of this dimension and she's aware of Krakoa. Well, if that's all it takes, I mean, can't argue with that. Uh, Betsy then telepathically tells Rachel to kindly stay out of her mind, which Rach has no option but to respect. Now, before cutting away, Rachel asks Rogue to give her a little skin-to-skin contact. Mine's out of the gutter. This is only so she could pass along a little bit of her telepathic powers, just in case Rogue might need them. But then, Saturnine appears... Oh, wait. No, that's Emma Frost. Uh, Sorry about that. Now, Emma's here because Cerebro had pinged that Betsy was back, and she's quite annoyed that Excalibur is keeping this fact from the Quiet Council. She then looks at Betsy and wonders just what in the hell is wrong with her. 
Rachel uses her vast TP powers to conclude that Betsy's kind of bummed down. Uh, Emma tells the crew that the Quiet Council is considering closing the Otherworld Gate forever. And uh, I need to get on the Quiet Council so I can vote yay. Um, Rogue is not keen on that plan and suggests that Excalibur will head back to friggin' Otherworld to chat up Saturnine about helping out with the otherworldly mutant resurrection problem. I mean, let's go back in time here. Not, not even too far back in time. Back when mutants could, you know, die. Uh, you know, the X-Men didn't spend the entirety of their existence from 1963 till 2019 trying to, quote, conquer death. They simply tried not to die. Just like every other hero in the Marvel Universe. Just like every other human in the Marvel Universe. Can't they just try to not die in other worlds? Oh well, uh, you know, maybe the members of the Wolverine family were right when they suggested that mutants these days have grown soft. Now Emma decides that she's going to give Rogue a few days to get this all sorted. We jump ahead to dinner time at the lighthouse, and the gang's all here. Richter, upon preparing what appears to be a bowl of baby poop, calls out to Betsy, offering her one last chance to get it while it's hot. Betsy declines to join them. Now, as our heroes sit down to sup, Valeria Winter Margaret Thatcher Braddock enters via a gateway. She spots Aunt Betsy and, you know, kind of freaks out. This causes Betsy's eyes to squint all sorts of evil, and then she flees. Moments later, Maggie drags Betsy's beautiful blonde, bewildered British brother Brian into the uh, gate, and by the time they get here, Betsy's done bounced. Brian, like Emma before him, is kind of annoyed that Excalibur would keep this from him, to which he gets the whole... We ain't know if she really truly her sugar treatment. At some point, Megan, Gloriana, Braddock, Nee, Pusino, Elf Ears arrives, and our rogue invites them all to stay for dinner. We jump to later, and Brian's having himself a think in front of the fireplace. He's approached by Rogue. Brian comments that Rogue doesn't seem to believe that this Betsy is their Betsy, and Rogue confirms that. Brian agrees, as her behavior is quite unlike anything his sister has done before, even when she's angry or upset. Then again, I mean, if this is the real Betsy, she was kind of just shattered into a million little pieces, which, I don't know, might just change a person a little bit? No? Anyway, Rogue leaves Brian to his thinking, and he soon falls asleep. He's then tripped awake by Betsy, but he's in a trance, you see. Betsy escorts him through the Krakoan gateway back to Avalon, where he heads to his quarters. Betsy then tags Rogue, waking her up. And, and tag as in, you know, tag, you're it which is exactly what Betsy says. Rogue wakes and then gets completely into costume before seeing Betsy head into a Krakoan gateway back to Krakoa. So uh, we got a, a lot of sense, sense of urgency here, right? Uh, Rogue assumes that this is like a game of tag, and Betsy is goading her into following. The members of Excalibur all get into their full costumes before meeting to decide how to handle the situation. So yes, urgency, thy name, is Excalibur. Rogue says she knows Betsy's on Krakoa, and so she's going to head there to try to track her down. Richter will come with her, but he has to make a stop first. I mean, urgency reigns supreme here, doesn't it? Jubilee then... Oh, come on. Jubilee is once again using Shogo's fussiness as an excuse to not do anything. Why is she even here? Come on. Uh, Gambit, the only member left, is sent to Avalon to chat up King Jamie the Weird who Rogue refers to here as Monarch, which is, you know, awfully official. 
I don't think we've seen much use of that weirdo Jamie Braddock's mutant name during this era, have we? Maybe we have, I just don't recall. Uh, Rogue again insists that she and Betsy are BFFs, and then we're off to the races. We're going to start with Gambit's trip into Avalon. King Jamie the Weird is just there chilling on his throne, as he do. Uh, Gambit asks about Brian, to which we learn that he is sleeping in his room. And so Gambit asks if Betsy's with him, which is kind of gross. Jamie is shocked to learn that Betsy's back at all. And, like Emma and Brian before him, gets annoyed that Excalibur would keep this from him. So, is this like a running gag at this point, or just lazy writing? Uh, I mean, do we need to see variations on this same exact scene three times over the course of the past ten pages? Anyway, uh, Gambit gives the same response Rogue did the last two times. We don't know that she'd be the real demonami monarch, you know, that kind of thing. Jamie then gets overly defensive, promising that he didn't create another new Betsy. You know, like he did during that weird London burning issue from right before Exit 10s. That one that resulted in the heretical Captain Britain Corps, if I'm remembering right. So yeah, he confirms that he didn't make another Betsy, but um, he did have one made. Oh, we all remember his request from Mr. Sinister's Black Market Clone Farm, yes? Now let's pop back over to Krakoa here. We got Rogue and Richter, they're in A.E.'s old magic lab, in the... Grove of Possibilities. I don't know if this is a new name for this area of the island. Maybe it's old. I don't have my Krakoa map handy. Anywho, Richter starts thumbing through the tomes while suggesting that there isn't much difference between their mutant powers and magic, and how use of their powers in tandem, like how the five do their resurrection hoodoo, is a sure sign of how mutant covens might work. Rogue appears to be kind of incredulous, but doesn't really bust Richter's chops over it. It looks like uh, she's even going to give him the opportunity to try casting a spell. Uh, It's not like there's any urgency to this endeavor, right? How about we just stop and watch a Dazzler concert while we're at it, and then maybe during the concert, Dazzler can announce that Betsy's back, and that Excalibur kept it from them. So then we can go one by one through the citizenry of Krakoa while Rogue says, we ain't sure it's really hard, sugars. You know, we can, we can really, really stretch this out. Anyway, let's go back to Avalon. Jamie escorts Gambit down to the dungeon to show off his black market Betsy. Along the way, they pass a table with a sheet on it. Remy removes the sheet, which reveals Morgan Le Fay in bondage. Gambit is aghast by this revelation. To which Jamie's all, hey man, she's a security threat, so this is where she stays, and Gambit really doesn't put up much of a fuss. He then shows Gambit a big old sarcophagus, which creaks open, revealing... Huh, you know, Jamie Braddock kinda looks like Geraldo Rivera, doesn't he? You remember when Geraldo, you know, found something that he opened for people, and, uh... Well, uh, you remember what he found inside there? It's the same thing that Jamie finds upon opening the sarcophagus. Bupkis. Nothing. Uh Uh-oh. Let's jump back to Krakoa, and Richter is casting a spell to try to access Apocalypse's last will and testament. Um, what? Okay, you all knew I was eventually going to ask this, but, uh... Did we miss an issue? Now, before Richter can do the thing, however, he's attacked by... Betsy Britton. Betsy knocks Rogue down and mounts her. Mine's out of the gutter. Rogue asks who she is, which seems a rather odd question to ask, doesn't it? Uh, Betsy responds that she's one of Rogue's oldest friends, which is either sarcasm or just rubbing Rogue's nose in it. 
Now, before Betsy can run her blade through Rogue, she herself is attacked by... Oh, come on. Any guesses? Any at all? Does anybody care? Of course she's attacked by Quanan, because of course she's attacked by Quanan. This feud refuses to quit, and I am tired. We close out with an info page, and it's Apocalypse's will, wherein he leaves everything to his apprentice, Richter. Whoop-de-doo. That's where we end it. Next episode, we're heading back into some more King and Black tie-inning with sword number three. But it's still Excalibur Day, so let's do some Excaliburing. This is the kind of issue that actually defies note-taking, because uh, I've never seen The Shining, but I do know there's that whole all-work-and-no-play makes Jack a dull boy thing just typed out over and over and over again. When I try to write notes for this, it just comes out as, I hate this book, I hate this book, I hate this book. Which, you know, is, is extreme. You know, hate is, a, uh, is an extreme sort of emotion to have, especially towards something as silly as a comic book. But this just really isn't for me. Um, we're going on 20 issues here, and we're still dealing with other world stuff. Um, I was still dealing with Psylocke versus Quanon after all these years of it, and I know we're going to get more of it in Hellions pretty soon. It's just like, is this... You know, I always talked, when I, when I would cover, like, Batman books, I would always talk about how everybody wanted to write that scene, you know? They wanted to write the scene where, you know, uh, Martha Wayne's pearls go all over the uh, all over Crime Alley. You know, everybody wants to be able to say they wrote that scene into a comic script, or Spider-Man at the George Washington Bridge, or whichever bridge they decide it was this time. They always want to write that scene. Is there, like, something in, like, X-Men writers where they want to write a Psylocke versus Quanon fight? Like, is that something that people have on their bucket list that we need to see? Because, first, aim higher. And second, come on, how many more times can we do it? How many more times do we need to see it? It's too much. Um, Let's talk about this Lady of the Water Betsy here and whether or not she is the real deal here. We don't get a whole lot of information here. I guess we can assume that perhaps she is the black market Betsy that escaped from the sarcophagus in Otherworld. Um, but, I mean, how did she get out? I would think maybe maybe Brian was tricked into doing it, but, but he would have been tricked by a Betsy that was already at the lighthouse. So maybe we have multiple Betsys here. Maybe the first Betsy is the real Betsy. Who woke Brian up to go free the black market Betsy from the sarcophagus? I, I really, I really don't know. I'm just so over this. Uh, this has just been going on way too long, and there isn't, there isn't enough story for this. There really, really isn't. Um, I mean, not only is this, you know, overarching story drawn out. I mean, just this is very issue was here. We had the same conversation thrice with people annoyed that Excalibur were keeping Betsy a secret. Which begs the question, why in the hell were they keeping Betsy a secret? I mean, if it... Let, let's... I mean, there's two ways this can go, right? There's two ways this can go. We have this Lady of the Water Betsy who showed up just in the nick of time to get uh, Mariana Stern from knocking over the lighthouse because the owner of the home wasn't there or some crap. Um, so let's go. We got two different ways we can go. Either this is the real Betsy... In which case, yeah, tell the Quiet Council, tell Krakoa, tell the mutants, tell everybody. Or this isn't the real Betsy. In which case, 
Tell the Quiet Council. Tell Krakoa. Tell everybody. There's absolutely no reason to keep this a secret. I, 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 I don't get it. I really, really don't. Let's go through our cast, because, I mean, there isn't a whole heck of a lot of story to discuss here. Uh, Richter suddenly wanting the last will and testament of Apocalypse. Did I miss something? Like, I mean, I know it's like almost a meme now or a trope. Every time we cover Excalibur, I have to ask, did we miss something? But did we? And I mean, even if we didn't, wouldn't there, shouldn't there be like a better time to attend to that? Like, can Richter do that on his own time? I mean, if this is so urgent that he needs Apocalypse's tomes and uh, the last will and testament, why is he waiting until they have other things to do to mention that, hey, I got to do this thing? I mean, at this point, I don't know how long ago X of Swords was, but I got to assume it's at least a few days. And if Richter was really this interested in, in getting Apocalypse's secrets, he would have by now. I don't know. This is just so, like, inorganic, inauthentic even. It's... Rough. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Jubilee, why the hell is she here? I, I, we're, if you're following along with the Sunday special series, we're taking a look at uh, Generation X Volume 2 right now, you know? And it feels like in every single scene, when Jubilee's asked to do something, she's like, oh, I can't, Shogo's crying. Oh, I can't, Shogo's tired. To the point where Danny Moonstar last time, she's like, give me Shogo and go do something. And yet here we are, and she's like, oh yeah, the world's ending. Oh, our, our good friend Betsy is a, she might be a, a clone or a doppelganger, but uh, uh, Shogo has a diaper rash. I'm sorry, I can't go with you. And that leaves poor Gambit to head to uh, that weirdo Jamie Braddock's uh, castle there to chat him up. Where, I mean, that's all well and good, right? I mean, Gambit and Jamie, I think that could be a fun conversation, but oh no. We gotta be reminded that Morgan Le Fay's in the dungeon. <laughs> Which means that this story's not gonna end anytime soon. This is just so unfun. Um, I will say, Rogue, as a leader here, is refreshing. I, I like her as a leader. I feel like they're really, really pushing us to believe that she and Betsy are like the bestest friends that have ever friended in the, in the world here, where I don't think they ever really were. But, hey, you know, maybe maybe it happened off-panel. It seems like a lot of the things in Teeny Howard's books happen off-panel, so I suppose it stands to reason that uh, their friendship uh, did as well. Um, as our friend Damien puts it here, this is a lovely-looking bit of nonsense <laughs> because the art is still fantastic. It's still Marcus Toe, and uh, that's great stuff. It's really, really pretty stuff. Um, but, yeah... Uh, <laughs> Not much more to say about this one. I'm just happy that it's uh, going to be like at least 10, 11, 12 episodes before we have to do another issue of Excalibur. But uh, Agree, disagree, please feel free to let me know. Um, speaking of which, let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to talk first to Damien, who's going to chat us up about Wolverine number 8, which is, you know, number 350, the big double-sized issue here. Damien says, did I just read a pretty good issue of Wolverine? It can't be. This is meant to be the worst X book. I was considering getting a tattoo with the X-lapsed catchphrase, except Wolverine. Uh, you really can't rely on anything these days. In fairness, they did try to make me feel at home with an interminable text page, but a surprise nonetheless. The first surprise was to see Victor Bogdanovic back. 
There was a bit of online controversy during X of Tens when Bogdanovic publicly stated that the Wolverine in Hell two-parter was badly written. I was convinced he would have been fired for that. Maybe they had to accept that he was right, and they can't fire people for honesty. And um, you'll have to fill me in on this statement here. I I went through uh, some of Victor Bogdanovic's social media, but... I guess fortunately and unfortunately, he's very, very active on social media, so it's a lot of scrolling to get back to X of Tens here. But I did find a tweet from him from September 24th, 2020 at 6.26 a.m. In it, he says, You know how much sense X of Swords makes for someone who hasn't read any of the current X books? The answer is zero. Data pages, fancy charts, but God forbid we add a little introduction page for dummies like me who are jumping in cold and have no idea WTF's going on. I'm not sure if that's the quote, but the thread does go on with Victor lamenting the state of impenetrability within the X-Books here. Um, though I gotta say, if anybody out there would, would like to uh, you know, do the show a solid and let Mr. Bogdanovic know that that this show is, exists and might actually help him get some stable footing in the post-Hoxpox world. Yeah, I wouldn't be against that. Please, please do that. I, you know, I would do it myself, but I think that would be kind of tacky if I did it myself. Anyway, Damien continues. I would have probably been surprised by another double-sized issue if I hadn't already heard you go through the bestsellers. They will be looking for any reason they can to make money out of their second best-selling X-book. And yeah, how crazy is it that Wolverine is <laughs> is one of the best sellers? It's it's wild. Um, Damien continues. Like you, I was surprised to see Dolores presented as a sinister character. There's no way this can work with her Marauder's appearance. She not only met Storm, but she did it in a way that was facilitated by Emma Frost and the Stepford Cuckoos. There's no way she could have been she could have hidden sinister motivations from that many powerful telepaths. Great point. If she is the bad guy, maybe she has been replaced somehow. We seem to be getting hints that there are multiple versions of some characters. We know Sinister has clones and is giving Jamie a new Betsy. This issue implies two Omega Reds and possibly multiple versions of Maverick, Sabretooth, and Wolverine. We could be approaching a secret invasion type story. Oh, oh, we really shouldn't put that in the universe, should we? Oh, could you imagine... Could you imagine if that's where this is all headed? I suppose stranger things have happened. It wouldn't surprise me <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, Dolores here being very, uh, like, like you said, very sinister here. I, part of me thinks that it's just lack of communication between the writers here, but uh, I really don't know. It just seems very, very bizarre. And, and you'll see when you get to uh, Wolverine number nine that She's still kind of iffy, because she'll be at the, the Legacy House auction. Just uh, doesn't seem like that same uh, kindly character we saw on the subway with Storm, who, you know, spilled the beans on Ominous Verandy. It's totally different here. And that's a great point you bring up, that that entire meeting, that was all worked through by Frost and the Cuckoos. So if uh, Dolores had any sort of underhanded motive or secondary motivation, it That would have been sussed out, for sure. Damien continues. The other possibility is that she's watching Wolverine's beer pal. I forget his name. It's Jeffrey Bannister. Because he is secretly a bad guy. Alternatively, it's an error. Yeah, I think that's the one we're going to go with. I think it's an error. Um, This is like comics Occam Razor, right? If if it doesn't make sense, they probably just made a mistake here. This would be a Comicum's Razor. I guess we can... 
call it if I really try to stress that. Uh, Damien continues, The idea of the Legacy House auction is really fun. It makes sense that superhero artifacts would have value, particularly in a world where DNA technology is accessible is as accessible as it is in the Marvel Universe. A pair of Dazzler's old disco ball earrings would give you the means to engineer the best soundproofing technology. And that is an excellent point, and uh, some pretty good soundproofing technology is something I'm actually very much in the market for right now. But uh, I, I won't bore you with the details of my real life here. Uh, Damien continues... I'm hoping we'll get to see loads of villains at the auction. I'll be very upset if they all put in telephone bids. Well, there will be uh, a few familiar faces there, so there will be a a handful. Uh, Damien continues, The resurrection of the patch disguise is great fun. I wonder if they'll incorporate the idea from back in the 90s that everyone knows he's Wolverine but pretends not to notice because they don't want to antagonize the guy with the claws. Yeah, I think that's probably the way it goes. Uh, You'll find out when you read number nine here, and that's something that I totally missed here, because I was like, how come nobody knows it's him? (laughs) You know, totally disregarding the fact that, yeah, they probably all know it's him, but they're just, you know, not really pushing the buttons. Uh, Damien continues, I thought the change of colorist really lifted Adam Cubitt's work here. Uh, The overly rendered coloring he received earlier removed a lot of the life from his art. He suits the flatter, less saturated color here. And, you know, I didn't notice the difference in the coloring here. I should probably take a look here. I, I know that I've liked the art, uh, the, the Cubert art, all throughout here. I gotta, I gotta do a, a compare and contrast here to see uh, if, I, if the colors are lost on me or not. Uh, Damien continues, I'm actually looking forward to the next part of a Wolverine story. I don't think that's happened since Weapon X by Barry Windsor Smith. Wow, well, that is high praise indeed, isn't it? Um, I'm trying to think if there was a time I was looking forward to a Wolverine story. Um, hmm. There was that, uh, that Chris Claremont one, I think it was Wolverine number 125, where they, we found out that he was married to Viper. I remember I was looking forward to that until I read it. Um, there's the uh, Rob Liefeld Watchtower. No, no, no. Uh, huh. Are we counting Wolverine and the X-Men? Because I, I looked forward to a lot of those, but just a straightforward Wolverine story? I can't say that I uh, can remember looking forward to any of those. Huh. Uh, you know, I think, I think Weapon X might, might be it for me as well. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Benjamin Percy admits he has a problem with text pages, make mine X lapsed. Well, you know, admitting that you have a problem is, uh, you know, the first step. In, uh, in recovering So maybe one of these days he will But uh, thank you so much For checking in on that issue of Wolverine And also for uh, for dropping that information On Bogdanovic there And again, if that's not the quote Please uh, feel free to send it my way And we can, uh, we can parse it here in future episodes uh, Next up We got Evan talking about X-Men number 16 He says After reading X-Men number 16 And listening to the episode I made a connection that others may have already found rather obvious I found it both interesting and a little irritating how the Quiet Council structure mirrored Arako's governing body, as revealed during the Festival of the Ten Swords. It couldn't be a coincidence, but I I didn't really see why. The timeline of Hoxpox was unclear, but it didn't seem to me like Apocalypse would have been involved in the setup of that government. Maybe he was, and that's the answer. The only other entity with experience with Arako would be Krakoa itself. So maybe the island, through Cypher, made some suggestions. But who said that Arako knowledge had to come from this life? 
Maybe Mora used knowledge from her life with Apocalypse to guide Xavier and Magneto in setting up this government. Maybe she even made them think it was their idea. I'm not sure how dramatic this revelation would be, but at least it links Arako further to the story rather than being this major revelation that felt, to me at first, like it came out of nowhere. Now, you know, the most interesting part of that is the fact that uh, I'm sure that we might get some sort of an answer from that issue that we were forced to read twice. You know, X-Men 12 and then 14. Uh, The, you know, the creepy summoner telling a story and then Iska telling... The, not Iska, uh, Genesis telling the real version of the story. I don't remember if they showed, I, I know they put together their uh, their council there, but uh, I don't think Apocalypse was included. It's, it's scary how we read that twice and I can remember like none of it. So if anybody else has that uh, information, you know, more at hand, please let us know. Evan continues. I enjoy a lot of the Quiet Council scenes. I agree with you that some aspects of the current status quo don't feel like an X-Men story, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I remember when someone criticized Dan Slott for making Peter Parker Marvel's new Tony Stark for a while, saying he wasn't really right for the role. Slott responded that it was part of the story. As you noted in Iska's exchange with Professor X and Magneto, a lot of these characters are are in a new role and perhaps they're ill-prepared for it. If this is part of the story, as opposed to trying to jam X-shaped pegs into round holes, it can work. And more often than not, these poor fits, even the aspects I don't like, seem to be a conscious story decision. Oh, I have uh, no doubt that uh, Xavier and Magneto's, uh, for lack of a better term, naivete as it pertains to creating and and managing a government on purpose. I think that's definitely going to be part of the story moving forward here. Because, uh, I mean, it was so clear. And uh, Iska herself kind of was, you know, I mean, she was pointing it out right there. It's like, you guys are, you know, you guys are bringing silly putty to a gunfight. You know, you guys are not equipped to uh, to run a government. She called it like a, a kid's government. Whereas Araco has had their, you know, great ring for millennia, I believe. It's been a very, very long time here. So back to your first point here about whether or not this could be uh, from a past life that Mora experienced and remembered. I think that's that could be quite likely because, I mean, Arako has had governments. Krakoa was just that island that ate mutants. <laughs> you know, it didn't have a governing body. It wasn't a world power for all these years until right now. So maybe Mora in, I don't remember if that was her sixth life. No, the sixth life was the far-flung future one. Whichever one was with Apocalypse, um, I wonder if she has taken the knowledge from that life to uh, to kind of make Krakoa on par with Arako or, or doing it, making the government in Arako's image because it's worked for millennia in, uh, for Arako. So definitely a lot of food for thought there. Hopefully these are things we'll learn more about. Um, I'm not convinced that we will anytime soon since we're you know going to be going into another crossover pretty quick. But... Uh, Fingers crossed we will eventually get some of these answers here. But thank you so much for writing in to talk about this issue. I hope this means that uh, Marvel Unlimited is being a little bit more um, kind with their X-Men releases here, a little bit more giving. But that's going to do it for the mailbag for today. If uh, anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag, please feel free to chat me up, write me. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook and talk about whatever you'd like at 90s X-Men. That's our little group on Facebook. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation applications and whatevers. Anyway, that will do it for today. Um, I guess this is the point where I apologize for being so negative about the book we covered today. So yeah, that. And I would definitely like to thank everyone so, so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 163 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, like the uh, ACDC song says, we're uh, back in King and Black. Uh, I'm sorry, that was bad. Uh, let's just hop right in here. We got a little bit to talk about. This is Sword, S-W-O-R-D, volume 2, number 3, which had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called Everywhere, Man. Written by Al Ewing, with art by... Oh boy, how are we saying this name again? Valerio Sheedy, I think. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Also, Ray Anthony Height, Bernard Chang, and Nico Leon. Colors, Mardi Gracia. Letters, VCs, Ariana Mar. Designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sapolsky. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale February 10th of 2011. No, 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 2021. Uh, now we open. With Manifold leaving the Spire and leaving Lila Cheney in charge. Now, Manifold's doing the old Bob Newhart telephone routine here where we don't know exactly what Lila is saying in return, just, uh, you know, Manifold's words. Uh, we get that she's kind of surprised to be left in charge, with the implication being that Gateway is probably better suited for the gig. After all, he's Manifold's mentor. Now, Manifold denies that this is the case, and, well, I mean, what reason does he have to lie, right? I gotta concede here, uh, while I might have a handful of comics with Manifold in them, 
I couldn't tell you a thing about this dude other than his penchant for yellow jackets at this point. From here, we get a double-page dealie of Manifold traveling everywhere. Now, everywhere being eight bright, uh, different brightly and distinctly colored alienish locales. Double-page spread, a roll call and cred follows, and we will be paying attention to Manifold. I'm going to probably be saying Manifold a lot today. Now, our hero finally arrives at his designated destination, Kata Tujuta, which, if Wikipedia is to be believed, is an off-the-beaten-path rock formation or mount in Australia. Now, if we add the word Manifold to our Google search, we find out that this is where he once lived while under the tutelage of Gateway. So, uh, is he or is he not Manifold's mentor? I don't know. Anyway, Manifold is greeted by a pair of fellas having themselves a campfire and a chat. They're named Sammy and Baz. They seem to be related to our main Manifold. Uh, I think he calls them both Uncle. Now, they're chatting about the king and black candy shell around the earth, and they're blaming the troubles on Manifold's mob. To which he assumes they're talking about the Krakoans. And nah, mate, not the X-Men. Australia loves our X-Men. Except when, you know, they live there. Sammy and Baz are talking about Eden's other mob, the Avengers. Now, they're the ones screwing the pooch right now. Uh, Iron Man in particular is a Drongo, which, according to the Google machine, is Aussie slang for idiot or stupid fellow. And, uh, yeah, I agree with Sammy and or Baz. Eden, Manifold, says that he really isn't all that tight with Tony Stark, and the only Venger he really sees anymore is King T'Challa. And that's only because he's the most relevant non-Wanda to the non-comics fans these days. Also because he was part of a recent adventure with him where they had their minds wiped and were made to do horrible things in outer space, including killing people. A lot of people, evidently. Uh, probably uh, shouldn't let the Quiet Council know. Anywho, Eden can't stay long because he's got stuff to do. First, he's got to go talk to a lizard guy. <sighs> I can't wait. Um, now, lizard guy, or lizard man, used to be like my go-to when I'd make fun of pre-crisis DC Comics as a kid. You know, I'd say things like, Ooh boy, Superman's gonna go fight a lizard man. You know, because all those stories to me seemed inconsequential, and uh, basically you could read them in any direction, and it wouldn't matter. And sure, I've learned in my adulthood that there's a bit more to those pre-Crisis DC stories than fighting a lizard man, but uh, I've still got that lazy indictment in my back pocket to pull out whenever I see fit. So, now, back to his plans. After he chats up the lizard guy, he's got to go visit with Sword's opposite numbers. Huh, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Anyway, before Eden leaves, his uncles warn him to be careful. They're not so sure about this Krakoa place despite telling us like 10 seconds ago how much they love their X-Men. Manifold tells them not to worry. After all, Krakoan law number three is to respect this sacred land, and the Unks ain't impressed, uh, as they had to actually make something like that a law rather than it just being, you know, common knowledge is a little suspect to them. Next up, info page, all about... Snark War? Oh, come on. No... Now, I gotta assume that a snark war is declared every time Brian Bendis takes over a book, right? Is this info page all about his recent and thankfully over-with run on the Superman books? Because I tell you, he most definitely declared a snark war on poor Lois Lane. 
No, no, this is actually even more boring than that. This is about yet another generic group of Marvel aliens. Oh man, am I going to have to start breaking out my lizard guy line about Marvel now? Yikes. So yeah, info page, lizard guys, yada yada yada, I'm bored. We next join Manifold in deep space. He's on the flagship of the Xenax, Xenax, Prince Jagjar. Jagjar? I don't know. I've had more entertaining yawns than that. Um, now, Jagjar, Jagjar? Huh. He comments that the Earth has fallen to null, which is why Eden's here in the first place. He wants Jagjar's mob to help out with stealing some powers. And he even offers up a pair of volunteers named Burner and Lifter, who are giving me very, very strong late Strike Force Moratori vibes here. Um, though those characters were just Burn and Lifter, not Burner and Lifter. Now, these characters were actually members of Magneto's weirder, sillier Brotherhood of Evil Mutants from the late 70s, and that's the same one where he got Peeper. Uh, they would later go on to be Mutant Force, and then the Resistance. Not Resistance, Resistance, with a T. Manifold seems to have it in his head that if they could team with the Snocks, they can defeat Null. Now, Jagjar changes the subject briefly and asks Eden if he ever heard of a planet called Ortua, which... Sounds like a place that would harbor generic Marvel aliens, doesn't it? I figure what we should probably do is just take, like, a whole handful of Scrabble tiles in one hand, alphabet cereal in the other, just chuck them at the wall, see how they land, and then we'll just start naming new planets and alien races for the Marvel Universe, you know? Hopefully those that haven't already been taken for, like, a new app or streaming service. So, yeah, sorry, where where, where were we? Um, Ortua. Ortua. Turns out that the Drongo lizard's sister, Kuga, has conquered the place and was going to weaponize it, but then Null destroyed it, which evidently was good news to Jagyar. This is quite dull. Uh, So it would seem as though Null taking his opponent and sister off the board was a welcome event. So he doesn't want to stop Null's path of inky, goopy, conquerous rage. So no deal, Manifold. Thanks for coming. Our man does his portal hoodoo and skadoos, after which Jagyar is murdered. Oh man, what a loss to the Marvel Universe. I really hope this doesn't affect the Snark War series on Disney+. Uh, we don't actually see who done it outside the reflection in the lizard man's eye. And the murderer, I, I don't know who it is here. Uh, they have like a, it looks like they have a triangular head. Like, maybe like a Shi'ar headdress, but really, who knows? And, and honestly, you know, who cares? The next stop for Eden is the Alpha Flight Space Station. And, you know, it's been a while since I last checked in on the Alphas. Uh, look at them being all current-year Marvel, having a space station, probably fighting generic and interchangeable alien threats. Oh, great stuff. Now, upon arrival, he overhears Henry Peter Gyrick on the phone with... somebody. Uh, Gyrick is apparently the acting commander of the Alpha Flight program, which we learn also includes Gamma Flight. Which, uh, hey, y'all, uh, I noticed when I was doing my June DCBS order a few days ago that there is a Gamma Flight limited series coming out. Is that something we're going to have to follow, you think? Uh, it's by Ewing. It sounds like it's spinning out of Immortal Hulk, so I'm not sure if it'll include any sword stuff. Uh, it does have Puck in it, though. Uh, let me know. Let me know what you think. Uh, from here, info page. This is a personnel file on Eden Fessy, Manifold, from Abigail Brand's files. We find out here that Eden is not a teleporter. 
he just talks to space, which um, allows him to teleport. So, I mean, I, I don't want to get into semantics or a debate here or anything, but uh, does Eden's talking to space allow him to do anything other than teleport? Because if not, I mean, dude's a teleporter then. He's also, from what we hear here, a really nice guy. So, the more you know. Anyway, Eden uses his power to eavesdrop on Gyrick's phone call, where he learns that the mutants have entered his crosshairs, and also that Gyrick is now associated with... Orcus. Bet you forgot about them. I know I wish I had. This leads us to an info page, and it's a like a heavily redacted Orcus information page. It's classified information. And it looks like we find out here that there are seven direct strategies of the Orcus Protocol, and we only get titles for four of them, and we only get names for one. So the first one here is Research and Development. The person in charge of that is Redacted. Two, Infrastructure and Influence. The person involved in that is Henry Peter Gyrick. Three, Operations and Offense, Redacted. Four through six are fully redacted. We don't know the titles or the names of the folks uh, involved in this. And then in the middle, we have number seven, the central executive, who is redacted. Now, Manifold ports over to Gyrick's desk to swipe the redacted document and blips back to the peak. Unfortunately, he leaves like half a second before Gyrick reveals to his phone mate that he has a mole in sword. There's a lot of Bob Newharding going on in this issue. Now, Manifold then returns to the peak, where he reports his findings back to Abigail Brand. She don't got much time to chat, however, as the Krakoan contingent still hasn't checked in from last issue. She figures they're probably in dire need of an extraction. Why she didn't send Lila Cheney or Gateway or Amelia Vogt or any of the other teleporters is anyone's guess. And so Manifold heads to Krakoa, where he finds many of his teammates and fellow mutants hung upside down by... The Canal Corrupted Kid Cable. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, uh, something a little bit different. We're going to take a look at a few Krakoa-relevant chapters out of 2020's Marvel's Voices number one. But for now, let's chat about this issue of S.W.O.R.D., which, um... I don't know if I'm using this word right, but it's a little bit of a dichotomy, isn't it? Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but... A. It's a Reign of X book. B. It's a King in Black tie-in. Like, this one even has the King in Black branding in it and everything, where last issue did not. Now, the way this reads, it, it feels as though, and this is, this is just me projecting here, that S.W.O.R.D. was kind of mandated to take part in this crossover. Which, I mean, as a space-based entity, it stands to reason that they would be. It's just kind of a shame that we're still so young in this volume. It's almost... Well, it's it's definitely a disservice to this book to have to finagle a way to engage with the King in Black looky-loos while attempting to establish itself as a viable and worthwhile addition to the Reign of X Krakoa story. And uh, I think Ewing did a bang-up job walking that tightrope here. He did what he had to do with King in Black, including visiting that lizard guy. But right after that visit, the lizard guy's killed, which... I'm assuming is planting seeds for this volume rather than anything Venom or Symbiote related. So he, you know, in theory, again, he used this mandate, and again, I'm totally projecting that this is a mandate, to further his own story. I think he did so very well. 
We get a mystery here, and mysteries are always fun, even when they're located in boring old Marvel space. Now, the Canole Corrupted Kid Cable bits feel like an afterthought, like they were kind of tacked on. And if we're still going by the mandate theory, they probably were. And sure, we're likely to get a big fight next issue, but you know what we didn't get? We didn't get three entire issues of Sword fighting off Kid Cable. (laughs) And thank goodness for that. Oh, man, take that, Empire Cash-Ins. Now let's talk Gyrick. Um, Now, you know me. I was tired of the Orcus Forge after the first time we read about them back during Hoxpox. Can't say as though I'm looking forward to seeing more of them, but they do appear to figure prominently into Hickman's grand vision, so I'm going to just have to get over myself here. We do learn here that there's a mole in our sword crew. Now, uh, this is interesting. Again, it's a mystery, and mysteries are always fun, even when they're predicated in boring old Orcus land. Um, But I wonder uh, who you think it is, who you all think it is. I mean, there are a few obvious choices, right? I think it would be way too easy for it to turn out to be Fabian Cortez, right? I mean, it would make total sense. He's kind of the most obvious choice, but uh, maybe too obvious. Now, I wonder, and uh, maybe they'll completely turn the book on its ear and reveal them all to be, I don't know, Abigail Brand herself. I mean, there could be a lot of mileage there. Though, uh, I guess unfortunately, that'd probably lead to another book being launched, probably an Orcus-led Alpha Flight or something. Hell, we're probably getting that anyway, but uh, we'll worry about that when it happens. But I think that could be a pretty interesting reveal here. Um, We did see when Manifold returned to the peak. Brand really didn't, uh, she didn't give him much time to talk about his discoveries at the Alpha Flight satellite, and... uh, Also, she didn't send any other teleporters to Krakoa, despite the fact that she was apparently very worried about the crew that already went there. So, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's there's some fire where that smoke is. Uh, Let's let's flip over to our main manifold here. Let's talk about uh, Eden. I feel like this issue is a great introduction for him. Because, like I mentioned during the synopsis, I don't have much experience with him. I could point him out on sight. But I couldn't really tell you anything about him. And now, I I still don't know much, but I know enough to sort of kind of care about him. So that's a good thing here, and such a good way... And, I mean, going back to the theory that this is a a forced crossover tie-in thing here, this is as good a way as to kind of navigate that as possible here. We're focusing on one character that's going to actually help build this series but you're also doing it in service of the King in Black story. You're still getting mileage out of both. You're, pl- you're playing both odds here, and uh, uh, Ewing did a great job. Speaking of great jobs, the art was great, and I didn't even realize that there were several artists credited on this issue through my for my first time through it, uh, which is a good sign. Or perhaps it's a sign that I'm even less perceptive <laughs> than I give myself credit for. Um, overall... This was a pretty good issue Pretty good issue I was not looking forward to it Since it is a King of Black tie-in And uh, I was afraid we were going to be Forfeiting uh, sh- uh, sword momentum In order to Just deal with the You know, the, the next mass crossover event And uh, no, we sidestepped that So this was a good issue Definitely worth checking out But that's all I've got to say about it 
Before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about New Mutants number 15. He says, I have no doubt that you are right in thinking that the various groups of kids are deliberately trying to keep Gabby safe during the fights. They were all there last issue when she was wondering if she would be resurrected. The likelihood that she wouldn't be resurrected is going to color how the other kids view her. It's also possible that they might see her as not belonging. She's different to them, and Warpath has reminded everyone that she was created as a weapon by humans. Back in the Claremont run, the sheer presence of the Shadow King increased conflict. Maybe everyone is keeping Gabby at arm's length as he is increasing their suspicions. You know, that's a great point about Warpath that, uh... I don't know that really jumped out to me until just now, that he did make this proclamation that Gabby is different and perhaps uh, too weak to overcome her human programming. I mean, he did so right in front of everybody. I didn't really uh, get the significance of that um, my first read-through, and even just until now. That is uh, really putting her under a microscope there. That's really pointing things out to these other kids. And, I mean, they're kids, right? Kids might not have the critical thinking that a uh, adult or more seasoned citizen of Krakoa might. So definitely keeping her at arm's length and keeping her as sort of an ostracized other. It's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, Damien continues, I have no doubt that the Shadow King is intended to be separate from Amal Farouk. Every time he appears, there is a kind of haze around him. I've read it to be an image of who he really is, but the other characters just see Amal. I can see Xavier resurrecting Amal as someone who had had their life destroyed by the Shadow King without necessarily realizing that the Shadow King could possess him again. Now that's the question. Um, has the Shadow King possessed him again, or is this just Farouk being a creepy weirdo? <laughs> I really don't know. Um, he's coming across as someone it's kind of difficult to get like a bead on, you know? At the end of the issue, he, like, toasts to the future and to the youth, and I don't know, there's just, like, this weird earnestness to the character. I don't, I don't know, it's, uh, I think this is going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting, uh, reveal. Damien continues, It's odd that Cosmar would approach Danny to face her in the Crucible when Danny already told her that she considered her perfect in the previous issue. It must be the Shadow King influencing Cosmar to approach the person who will definitely say no. He wants her to feel alienated. Another great um, observation there that I didn't see until right this very second. That's a really, really good theory there. Um, Danny did, in fact, tell Cosmar that she was perfect. So that is highly suspect that she would be the one that Cosmar would be uh, encouraged to reach out to, to, uh, well, kill her. So that's a very, very interesting uh, idea. And uh, if it is Farouk or the Shadow King influencing Cosmar to do so, that's, uh, that's definitely making a statement here. It's uh, uh, Cosmar will feel alienated. She's going to feel different. She's going to feel like no one's going to help her. It's uh, kind of a world wrecker for, uh, for Cosmar there. Uh, Damien continues. The reintroduction of Tyr, that is uh, Wolfsbane's uh, son there, and the idea of resurrection for him is something I hadn't thought of. I guess I'd considered him a magical creature rather than a mutant. Maybe I'm misremembering. It does seem odd that Rain is communicating with Elixir rather than Xavier or Magneto, who have both been mentors to her. That's a great point. That's a great point here. Um, I don't know what the Krakoan chain of command is here. I don't know if it's uh, breaking 
protocol to write directly to a member of the five? You know, are they supposed to be like a direct contact for someone who's looking for a resurrection request? It's pretty weird. Um, now, Tyr, as someone who could be resurrected, that's not something I thought of because I haven't thought of Tyr in like eight years. So uh, when I saw this, it was like a flood of memories hit me and I remembered that he existed in the first place. I totally forgot that a strong guy killed him when he was the sort of kind of king of hell or whatever it was. But uh, I like it. I like it. It's, uh, I, you know, I'm a lore guy. I love all lore, good, bad, and indifferent. I, I'm a fan of it all. I like everything mattering. So it would stand to reason that Rain, someone who was recently resurrected herself, who has a son who is currently off the board, um, would want to see him resurrected and would make that request. Uh, I'm with you, though. It's weird that this wouldn't go through Xavier or Magneto to the five, unless, I mean, sometimes these things happen off panel. You know, maybe they told her, hey, yeah, go ahead and write to the five. We'll see what they can do. Uh, Damien continues. Overall, though, I'm, I'm loving the new direction for New Mutants. I love the fact that Vita Ayala is giving moments to so many characters whilst also advancing their overall plot. I recently recorded a podcast about the original New Mutants number 37, which was the first issue of New Mutants I ever read, and I've reread a, whole, a lot of the old series. I feel like Vita Ayala has captured the tone of the original series really well. It was often dark, but always very human. I'm really enjoying this take. I agree 100%. I really, really do here. Um, I'm so happy that this is a book that finally has a direction. It feels stable. It also feels like um, this is the place where a lot of those inconvenient questions are going to be asked. And uh, I like it because... You know, we can think about things and we can relate this to real life in, in some sort of ways here where youth are often, they're often pictured as being like indoctrinated in some sort of a way, right? They're being taught things, they're being told things, they're being basically given worldviews from people who've experienced things, good or bad or indifferent. And here we have children who are being told the Krakoan way and they've got questions because... They, you know, kids are honest, you know? Kids can't, or they can, but they don't always just try to justify or rationalize things or massage things into making sense. If they've got a question, they're going to ask it. They're naturally curious. They haven't been beaten over the head with cynicism yet. So when we get a question from Gabby, hey, I'm a clone. Am I going to be resurrected? It's a, it's a problematic question because... No, no adult was going to ask that question. And we saw how Magic and the gang handled it. They didn't want to answer it. They changed the subject as quickly as they could. It's funny that these questions are coming from the children here. Uh, we saw in Hellions, uh, Orphan Maker asking questions like, well, if Empath's dead, how is Empath standing here in front of me? It's a really, really good and subtle use of youth and the naivete and the curious nature of children here to make these points that we've been waiting to see made since we started this journey. So I'm loving New Mutants. It's a wonderful read, and I really just can't wait for more of it. So thank you so much, Damien, for uh, writing in about that. And I will, uh, hopefully I will remember to link to your show on New Mutants number 37 in the show notes here. I Fingers crossed I remember. <laughs> but thank you so much, Damien.
Next up, Evan Bevins writes in to answer a question we had about Arnim Zola in that Juggernaut series. He says, listening ahead to some mailbags and on the Arnim Zola redesign, it looks like it might be based on the character's appearance in Captain America the Winter Soldier, which I'm sure you've seen many times. Oh yes, many, many, many times. Uh, He continues, in case I'm wrong, Zola appeared on an old-school Matrix-esque screen there. Uh, But given that that movie's nearly seven years old, it seems an odd choice to make him look like that now. Unless maybe the redesign is from an earlier comic I haven't seen. Yeah, I, you know, you guys know me, I don't see the movies. So uh, I didn't know that, uh, I didn't know that Arnim Zola was in the movie. And I also didn't know that... uh, he had a redesign here. I suppose for a movie, it makes more sense to look like that. Um, I remember, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but when they were talking about making the X-Men movie back in the late 90s, people were like, how are you going to make Wolverine's costume work on a human being, right? Because he's got the you know, the pointy ears and the, you know, the headpiece. And uh, their decision was, hey, we'll take them out of costumes altogether. We'll just put him in leather. <laughs> and that's how it worked. Um, so maybe... You know, you look at Arnim Zola here, and I mean, the sky's the limit with special effects these days, but you gotta wonder how the mainstream, non-comic fanny, looky-loo audience would uh, receive the classic look of Arnim Zola rather than just a a Matrix-esque screen. So uh, you're probably right. This is probably where it's coming from here. I don't know why that's being shoved into the comics here. Uh, Maybe, like you said, maybe there's comics we haven't seen yet where... Maybe the face was smushed. I don't know. Maybe he's in a different body. Really couldn't tell you. This is probably the most I've ever thought of Arnim Zola in my entire life. But <laughs> thank you so much for writing in to answer that question, Evan. Uh, finally, we got a note from Facebook from our friend Andrew Franklin regarding Excalibur 18, which we talked about just last episode. He says, has anyone read any other Teeny Howard book? And if so... Was it as unclear and as hard to follow as this book? Because I'm trying my damnedest to give the writer the benefit of the doubt, but after 18 of these things, I'd be hard-pressed to willingly read another Howard-penned book. And I'm going to leave that one for you all to uh, to answer here. I do not have any other Howard experience. I've read about her Strike Force run, mostly because I thought for a second it was a a rehash or a revitalization of Strike Force Moratory. It thankfully was not, but uh, I did check to see what it was all about and found the reviews to be uh, very, very reminiscent of how we discuss Excalibur. You know, it's very stop-starty. It's a little unclear. Scenes just kind of end. It's uh, It jumps around a bit, so I don't know if this is just her style of writing. If it is, hey, it is, but... Uh, I suppose after a little while we're going to uh, we're going to be getting a second Teeny Howard book in our rotation here with the X Corp miniseries. So we will probably all find out together. But if anybody has a more solid answer the, to that for Andrew and for the rest of us, please feel free to let us know. Or better yet, uh, go over to Facebook, join '90s X Men, and uh, and chat us up there about it. Uh, help answer some questions and join in on some fun conversation. Speaking of which, we uh, talked about another bit of uh, news on the Facebook group earlier today. And uh, not often I get to talk about news, but Marvel just released a timeline for upcoming Reign of X launches. 
And it looks like this line is going to continue to bloat, as if the seams weren't already showing. We're going to go through all of these here. It's uh, we got like five or six things here to talk about. Now, they have listed as on sale now Children of the Atom by Vida Ayala and Bernard Chang. That one's in the hopper already for a review. Just got to get to that point in our read-through. Then April 2021 sees Way of X, new title by Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn. May 2021 sees another new title. This is that miniseries X Corp by Teeny Howard and Alberto Fochi. Uh, June 2021 is the Hellfire Gala. Nothing launch in there, but uh, 12 issues all about the Hellfire Gala. July 2021 is X-Men number one. Yeah, we're doing that again. Uh, We are relaunching with the new team. Oh boy, X-Men's going to be on volume six. Mm, It feels cheaper with every subsequent volume, doesn't it? The good news is the creative team. You ready for this? If you haven't seen the news yet, X-Men will be written by Jerry Duggan with art by Pepe Larraz. Oh, man. I am looking forward to that. It looks like we're finally going to have our team. This is going to be a goodie. This is going to be a goodie. August 2021, redacted number one. Yeah, it's classified. We don't know what this thing is called. Um, It looks like it's a two-word title. The first word is the. So we don't know what it's going to be. What we do know is that it's written by Leo Williams of X-Factor with art by Valerio Sheedy of S.W.O.R.D. So uh, that's interesting. Makes me wonder if we're going to see any uh, any shuffling in the, the creative chairs here. We jump to September 2021, the final month of this timeline, and we get question mark number one. We don't know what this book's going to be. Uh, it is by Jonathan Hickman with art by... Redacted. We don't know who's going to be drawing this here. Um, if anybody has any guesses, please feel free to let me know. Um, I know some of the big news of late is that John Romita Jr. is back at Marvel, but I think he's on a Moon Knight title, so maybe he won't be on the question mark book uh, that Hickman's writing here. So that's uh, one. T- that's that's a few new titles in it. I mean, X Men. We're just going to replace the old volume with a new volume. But uh, that is, we're going to be up one, two, three, four, five books. Five books. One of them, of course, is a miniseries. I, I mean, they all might be miniseries, who knows. But uh, five new books. <sighs> to add to our 12? <laughs> I mean, oh, boy, we're never going to catch up. So, I mean, where does this leave the rest of our line here? Are we going to see some books thinned? I know, I know we're losing cable. I mean, we're going to be losing cable for sure. I hope we don't lose Hellions. I hope we don't lose X-Factor. I hope we don't lose Marauders. But, I mean, we're, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So, I don't know if we're going to have just creators doing double duty. I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. I mean, if we look at things now, we've got Teeny Howard doing Excalibur and X-Corp, the miniseries. Alea Williams writing X-Factor and Redacted. Valerio Shidi drawing Sword and Redacted. Jerry Duggan writing Marauders and X-Men, and Vida Ayala writing New Mutants and Children of the Atom. So I guess we'll have to uh, wait and see. I I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on uh, 
the uh, the summer of Reign of X here and uh, everything that it will afford us and all of the discussions we will be having. But that's the news for today. Uh, again, I'd love to hear from you about anything, anything in the world. I'm very lonely. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. As mentioned, we have a fun Facebook group. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook. We're having some really good chats over there. Uh, I actually just shared uh, some of the Victor Bogdanovic quotes about uh, about the X of Swords debacle on there to, to discuss, uh, the ones that Damien told us about last episode. So we're discussing those there. We're talking about... This uh, Reign of X timeline there We're talking about a whole bunch of stuff So hope to see you guys there And uh, hey, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs You can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com Available on all your noise aggregation sites and devices and applications And all those other words that I say Um, Yes, but that is it for today Uh, Next time out, as mentioned, we're doing something a little bit off the beaten path Marvel's Voices number 1, which sees... A one-panel cameo first appearance of the Children of the Atom from like a year ago. So that'll be interesting to, maybe not so much interesting to talk about, but it'll be interesting to see. But I hope you're looking forward to that. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 182 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, well, uh, right now, X-Lapsed is fully vaxxed. I, I just got back from getting my second uh, COVID vaccine. And, you know, um, I heard a lot about the second shot. Um, people saying that it really, really took it out of you. Like, if the first one didn't, the second one would. You know, it's a, it's a, God, it packs a bigger punch. 
and it just puts you, you know, puts you down for a bit, or has the potential to put you down for a bit, and I'm not sure if it's the, uh, the power of suggestion or if it's legit, but uh, I tell you what, I'm feeling it. <laughs> I'm really kind of feeling it here. Uh, no sooner did I get the injection than I got like a, not not so much lightheaded, but just like a like a whoosh kind of feeling, and uh, everything kind of is slow. <laughs> everything is slow right now, but. I ask you this, what better state of mind to be in to talk about an issue of Excalibur than to be just a little bit out of sorts? Um, let's hop right in. Now, this is Excalibur Volume 4, Number 19, and a May 2021 cover date. The story is called Wild Violets, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Tell. Colors, Eric Arshinaga, letters, VCs, Ariana Mar, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price $4. This one went on sale March 24 of 2021. I suppose I could start by uh, mentioning the cover here, which I think is the first of two covers this month that has Psylocke and Betsy Britton fighting. I mean, we get to... We see that a lot, don't we? Maybe a little too much, but uh, that's the cover. That's the cover we get today, and it actually does play off what we're going to see in the book. So we open it up, and we are on Earth... 13059 And I'm already trying to stifle a groan Um, Here we revisit with Elspeth Braddock The Captain Britain of this realm Now she's sat inside a circle of candles Attempting to track down our 616 version Via sorcery Or um, in the words of the book Her focused totality turned inward now, you know, anytime we happen across a designated Earth, I always run it through the wiki to see if it's a brand new Earth or one that we might have seen before. Turns out, this one already existed. Um, this one first appeared in Extreme X-Men Volume 2, Number 9, January 2013 cover date. And uh, now this isn't the uh, Claremont version of Extreme X-Men. This is basically uh, like taking the reality-hopping concept of Exiles and giving it a, well, at least in theory, a more sellable title in uh, Extreme X-Men. Now, this Earth is sort of a fantasy realm, or a uh, Tolkien-styled realm, to use the wiki parlance, uh, that was controlled by the tyrant Lord Xavier until, uh, I guess, Dazzler killed him or something. It's been ages, at least, uh, what was that, 2013? So at least eight years, or I guess at most eight years since I read that Extreme X-Men volume. Anyway, uh, Elspeth is uh, somehow able to locate our Betsy. Now, she's bouncing from one reality to another, and uh, for some reason appears to be trying to evade the rest of the Betsy Corps. An Earth-13059 version of Nightcrawler bursts into the room to see what's the matter, and it looks like Elspeth actually was successful in capturing the essence of our Betsy, and it's in the form of a glowing purple orb, because, well, of course it is. So next stop, the, uh, well, the friggin' Citadel and Otherworld, of course. Uh, now, the Betsy Britton Corps is here in full force, demanding access to the court chambers so that they, they can send Betsy's essence back to our Earth in order to, quote, restore her cleanly, body and soul. Now, Saturnine, well, she's, she, she's not very cool. She ain't having it at all, and she does not grant them access. And so, the Corps decides that they'll deliver the Essence, which is being housed in a lantern, to Earth via the Krakoan Gateway in Avalon. And I know I joked about Betsy becoming a Star Sapphire a few issues back, but uh, this feels a little bit on the nose, doesn't it? Now, it's worth noting 
Among these Betsies is that queen version we saw our Betsy take the place of an issue or two back. So uh, she's a legit member, which shouldn't really be a surprise, but little details like this are very appreciated. And uh, it's probably not even worth saying, there is no editorial footnote to remind us of this fact. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters today include Betsy Britton, Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Captain Avalon, Gloriana, Megan, uh, and Psylocke. From here, we hop into an info page, and it's from the Grimoire of Richter. Now, it looks like he's trying to figure out how to position everybody to conduct the spell to unite Betsy's essence with the empty black market clone of Betsy that that weirdo Jamie Braddock procured for Mr. Sinister. And it doesn't look like it's going well. Uh, the page here, it looks like a page out of his book, of course. It's covered with scribbles and notes and, uh, you know, plan A's, plan B's, plan C's. Uh, and this is a really good way to show that Richter is still new to this whole magic casting nonsense and still has a lot to learn. So as little as the whole magic angle does for me, I appreciate little bits like this that show that, I mean, so often when we have characters discover powers or skill sets or talents, they're just immediately good at it, Right. Here we have Richter, who is still has a lot of room to grow into this role as a druid or as a whatever the hell, a caster of magic. Um, and so we pop back into comics, and uh, we're, I'm guessing, with the Excalibur Lighthouse. Now, Betsy's black market bod is laid out on the table, which I take it to be the same one we saw running around last issue doing all that weird stuff until Quanon showed up to take her down. So, um, anybody out there with the X-Lapsed Caliber Bingo card, this is the part where I ask, Hey, did we miss an issue? Because I don't recall seeing the Black Market Betsy get subdued, so to speak. Um, Quanon kind of just pushed her over. I thought we were going to see a fight, this, uh, this issue. And, I mean, the cover shows a fight, so I was assuming we were going to see Betsy and Quanon fight. Um, but no, we are going to get more into why she was running around doing all that weird stuff at the end of the last issue. So don't you worry, we will get there. Now, at the head of the table is Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother, Brian, who is holding the lantern full of Bet's essence. Uh, around the table are the remaining members of our cast, Gambit, Wolverine, uh, not Wolverine, he's, this is the one book he's not in, Gambit, Rogue, Jubilee, Richter. Um, Richter is growing more and more frustrated that this spell isn't working. Quanon suggests that, hey, you know what? Maybe there's someone here who's trying to sabotage the spell. Now, who could she be referring to? Well, she's referring to Betsy herself. And so she kicks the purple lantern off the table, shattering it. The Bet's essence, now freed, escapes through the Krakoan gateway back to Avalon. Now, while everybody else is freaking out, Quanon calmly states that she will go after her former bodymate. Brian Britton asks if he can come along, but is shut down. Quanon has to do this alone. And so she does. Next stop, Avalon. More specifically, Jackdaw's Nest. Holy smokes, Jackdaw. Now, for folks who have taken a look at the X-Lapsed Origins articles over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, you will be very familiar with Jackdaw. Now, this is a pretty deep cut, so kudos to Atini for this one. Now, unfortunately, none of these jackdaws are dressed nearly as radically as the one that we briefly knew. Anyway, the bouncing ball of Betsy has escaped here and has dove down a well. Quinan calmly, ever so calmly, saunters up, informs the jackdaws that she's here to help, then follows the purple stuff into the well. 
At the bottom lays a Betsy corpse in full Captain Britain regalia. Quinan realizes that this is all an illusion and pushes herself through the brick wall at the bottom of the well. This brings her into a hallway which has another Betsy corpse laid out on the floor. She calls out, and finally, Betsy shows herself. Now, in a bit of a role reversal, it would appear here as though Quinan is more at peace with their twisted history than Betsy is. Uh, Betsy just doesn't seem to want to face it. Whether that's due to some sort of guilt, or something she just doesn't want to have to think about, I couldn't tell you. But, you know, I tell you, for a story as played out as the Quanan ex-Betsy story has been, I appreciate any new twist that we're given, so thumbs up. And so, over the course of the next couple of pages, the two Psylocks sort of kind of fight, until Quanan can convince Betsy that she actually didn't lose during the semi-recent Festival of Swords. And I mean, technically, at least as far as the bout itself is concerned, she, she did lose. Because uh, if you remember, Iska the Unbeaten shattered her into millions of Betsy bits. But we're talking bigger picture here. Which is that in picking up the Starlight Sword, Betsy became the face of the Captain Britain Corps. Now, Betsy was completely unaware that any of this was real. She knew about it, but thought it was just a dream or a vision. Didn't, couldn't imagine that it was actually fact. Quanan then takes the Bet's essence into her own body, and together, they return to the lighthouse. Now, as this happens, the Betsy stained glass in the Starlight Citadel comes back together, much to her royal wyness's dismay. Info page, The Ballad of the Violet Stranger. Now, this is either a poem or a song written by the Jackdaws in honor of Quanan, and no, we're not going to read it. Back to the lighthouse, where Brian Britton is getting a bit froggy. He'd like to participate in this hunt for the bet's essence. He and Gambit get into a bit of an argument, which is thankfully cut short by the return of Quanan, And she's carrying the Starlight Sword. She explains to everyone that, at present, she is both Quanan and Betsy. She walks over to the black market Betsy and places the Starlight Sword in her hand... Then, Betsy wakes up and starts gagging. Hmm, she manages to spit out a very familiar piece of jewelry, a choker. A choker that belongs to Malice. Now, with Betsy's essence restored, there's no longer room for Malice to lurk, and so she escapes. We wrap up with our team worried that anybody on Krakoa might right now be possessed by Malice. Next episode, we go back to King and Black, following up on the Marauders' mission from their one-shot in Savage Avengers number 18. But for now, let's talk a little bit about this issue of Excalibur, which uh, I didn't I didn't hate. <laughs> I didn't dislike it. Uh, sure, there were a lot of the same you know, bugbears that I have about uh, Excalibur in this issue. We have scenes that kind of just start and end, really not uh, transitioning to what's next to come. They just kind of stop. Like we have, uh, we have the Betsy core. They've got the lantern full of the Bet's essence, and then it's just like, well, suddenly Betsy's on the table. You know, she, it, the transitions are just—they're still lacking. I mean, that's uh, that's been one of my main complaints about this series ever since we started it. Another uh, big complaint that I have is that. Uh, Feels like we missed an issue. Um, a lot of uh, Teeny Howard's stories seem to be told off-panel. You know, um, we had Quanon show up. We had the face-off last issue, and uh, 
suddenly it's just over. You know, we didn't get to see any sort of fight. Um, maybe they didn't want to waste our time with the fight, considering it wasn't actually Betsy in that body. Um, I really couldn't say, but it still felt a little bit disjointed. When I saw the uh, the black market Betsy laid out on the table there, I was like, wait a minute. You know, I could have sworn we were doing something before we'd get to uh, Betsy in captivity, or at least restrained. It's... Very odd, but uh, certainly not out of character for uh, for this book, which, again, is kind of PC. Now let's talk a little bit about Malice here. Uh, Malice is a character I don't know a whole heck of a lot about. I'm sure I've read several stories with Malice in it. Uh, I know uh, she turned uh, the Invisible Woman into a version of uh, Power Girl, at least in the costume department there, with the big hole in the, the cleavage hole, right? Uh, how, what do we call that? The boob window. We had Sue Storm with the boob window there And uh, I think that had to do with Malice I, I, I sure hope it did Because that seems kind of out of character for uh, for Sue But uh, I think that had to do with Malice And what jumps out to me here Is that uh, Malice is known for working with Mr. Sinister, right? And where did Jamie, that weirdo Jamie Braddock Where did he get this black market body from? Well, he got it from Mr. Sinister So I wonder if there's a coincidence there I, I would have to assume that's uh, what we're supposed to be gleaning from this. So uh, I gotta wonder: um, Does Sinister have any other uh, secrets hiding in the in the I guess uh, basement of Bar Sinister? I think that's uh, that could be a fun thing to see uh, play out here. I think I'm most excited to see Malice here because it tells me that maybe next issue won't take place in Otherworld. Maybe it's going to take place actually on Krakoa Maybe we'll get an issue of Excalibur Where we don't have to deal with Saturnine I, I, I can hardly imagine that it's going to actually go down that way But I got my fingers crossed I got my toes crossed I got my eyes crossed I just want to be done with Otherworld for just a little bit But what else do we got here? Um, we have a sort of kind of fight scene between Quinan and Betsy Nothing we haven't seen before uh, a nice little twist on it, like I mentioned during the synopsis, where it seems as though Quanan is the one that's more at ease with their situation, where previously it seemed as though, you know, Betsy had hard feelings. She felt guilt, you know. She felt very guilty for what had happened, even though it wasn't in her control. And But she seemed more comfortable with it overall, where Quanan was the one who couldn't let it go. I mean, we had a whole volume of Fallen Angels where... Like, every page we heard about butterflies and purple and uh, how they shared the body, and it, it was just, it got to be way too much uh, in Fallen Angels. But here, it's a, it's a nice role reversal, right? We got Quinan is like, hey, you know what? What happened in the past is the past. It happened. We can't change it. But Betsy needs to, uh, you know, she needs to buckle down here. She needs to stop running, stop hiding. And, uh... I appreciated that, because for such a played-out story as the Betsy Quanon mishmash, it's nice to get any sort of uh, fresh coat of paint on it, and this was very much that. So, happy about that. Uh, also happy to see the Jackdaws. I wouldn't have imagined we'd ever, ever see them again. Um, and it's odd that I just wrote about them like a month ago, and here they are. Uh, really, really cool, and uh, adds to my, you know, X-Men, X-Lapsed Origins uh, tagline of, uh, you know, seminal events in X-History still relevant today, because, hey, you know, it's Jack Doe's here. He's, uh, they are relevant, at least for the moment. We may never see them again, but uh, it was neat to see them, at least today. 
we had uh, two info pages in this issue here, and I usually don't break down the info pages in our discussion segment, but uh, I felt that one actually served the story and one wasted a page. Um, the one that served the story was Richter's Grimoire, right? And I mentioned this during the synopsis. This shows, this illustrates that uh, Richter, he's still a magic neophyte, right? He's got a long way to go before he could be anywhere near on the level of their previous magician in Apocalypse here, because this was Apocalypse's grimoire first. So here Richter's trying to follow in Apocalypse's footsteps here and is realizing that, uh, well, uh, and Sabanoa had some pretty big shoes, right? And uh, there's going to be a lot of learning on the job. It's going to be a work in progress, and it should be. I really, really like that. The other info page, a poem or a song. Uh, we had, somebody's got to stage an intervention. Uh, we we got to stop having this kind of stuff in this book. They're just a waste of a page. I would wager that... Uh, I'm not a betting man, as I mentioned many times, but... Uh, I would say probably one out of every 25 people that reads this issue will actually read that page. Because, come on. Finally, let's talk about the art, or at least mention the art here. It's Marcus Toe. It's fantastic. It's just really, really pretty work. Uh, Definitely doing the heavy lifting for this entire run uh, is Marcus Toe. Really, really strong work. I just wish it were a more interesting story more often than not. But that is all I got to say about Excalibur today. Um... But before we go, we do have a stop in the mailbag here. We're going to talk to Evan, who's writing in to discuss New Mutants number 15. He says, I got the old Excalibur feeling in the opening pages of this. Did I miss an issue? We never saw the payoff of magic teaching whoever, Farouk's kids, a lesson, but she seemed pretty chilled out at the wedding reception. Well, yeah, this was a little bit odd because uh, we do, and if you're listening to this episode, you've probably already uh Listen to the next uh, New Mutants episode, uh, issue 16 it would have been uh, Magic does deal with uh, those kids And they're just, uh, they're just random punks from what I can remember here They're not, uh, they're not Farouk's kids, they're just, uh, they're just jerks <laughs> Is who they are here But it did seem weird that, uh, that we start the story in one issue And then don't pick up on it until the next With, you know, with a scene in the interim there Which is a total... Um, mood change, right? It's uh, kind of weird, but uh, but yeah, it will all make sense. It will all make sense. Um, Evan continues. I was glad to see Tear mentioned. That X Factor story was so bizarre. I'm not sure I would have stuck with it had anyone other than Peter David been writing it. As usual, he delivered. It's weird that the five are questioning whether he actually died. Could it be that the Quiet Council has some other reason for not bringing him back? Maybe he's not a mutant. That would certainly be reason enough for the majority for a majority of the council to veto his resurrection. Perhaps Elixir is just trying to spare the feelings of his former flame or avoid a lupine rampage by offering up a different reason. Now, I tell you what, I hope you're right. I hope you're right that uh, there is some sort of a concern over whether or not Tyr is a full mutant or mutant enough to qualify for the resurrection protocols here. I think this is headed somewhere different. I think this is going to be, and I hate to say it because this is something this is something from the Marvel Universe I don't really care for, but I think, I think this is going to lead to an Asgardian story. I think this is going to lead to the New Mutants going into Asgard to find Tyr, because uh, Tyr, they say he's not dead. They say he's not sure he's dead, so maybe he's in Asgard, and... Uh, Really, I, whenever I ask people like to name seminal uh, New Mutant stories, it's usually the Demon Bear Saga and 
the stuff in Asgard. And so um, I'm really worried that we're going to get an Asgard revisitation. <laughs> um, now, let's say that this does have something to do with his uh, mutant pedigree or an argument about his mutant pe- pedigree here. This is another instance where we're kind of fomenting a distrust in the Quiet Council. And I mean, we're seeing that kind of a lot. You know, several books now have have characters who are given side-eye to the Quiet Council. I mean, we've got a whole X-Men volume coming up that's kind of based around distrusting the Quiet Council in a way, or just maybe not seeing their way as being the right way. We've got Way of X, where Nightcrawler is investigating, you know, some evil that's penetrating people's minds, uh, penetrating the minds of Krakoa. Uh, there's just a lot of distrust. The Hellions, you know, Madeline Pryor not coming back. Here, we have Tyr not coming back. I just worry that every book is going to wind up having their beef with the Quiet Council come out at once. And I worry that that might lessen the impact of the individual concerns, right? Doing it all at once, getting all the questions answered, it might be expedient, right? And it might... It might stifle a few critics who may say that this is dragging on a little bit too long, but I'm not sure I want to see such a dramatic pivot. Now, I'm just freestyling here. I've got absolutely no idea anything about the direction that they might be headed here, but let's take this tier story, for example. If we stack this distrustful moment up next to the others, it's kind of small potatoes compared to some of them, right? It's, I mean, it's still a big deal. It's still someone's kid. But in the grand scheme of things, I think people would look at this as lesser than, you know, Cyclops and Jean Grey breaking off and starting a new X-Men team. Or Madeline Pryor not coming back. Or Kid Cable bringing back Old Man Cable and worrying about the, uh, the protocol rules on time travel and dupes and doppelgangers and alternate reality versions. Then you have the tear story, which is just like, you could see like this page where everybody's just railing at the Quiet Council, looking for answers, and then like at the very bottom, you got Rain going like, and, and me son, where's me son? I just feel like that is, uh, it would lessen the potential urgency of the story here. But again, don't know where it's headed here. Evan wraps up with, now I just want somebody to explain how Guido got his soul back. Or maybe I don't. I like continuity, but I also like Guido not being the king of hell. Well, I haven't read any of this, but I did a little bit of research here. Uh, this apparently happened after a story in the all-new Marvel Now era Thunderbolts, which were issues 21 and 22 of, I think it was Thunderbolts Volume 2 at that point, uh, came out in 2014. And if I'm understanding this right, uh, when that storyline ended, um, Guido remained in hell... He was no longer the king of hell, but he was still without his soul, okay? So he decided he'd stick around hell until he could get his soul back. From there, he would just reappear in the first issue of Inhumans vs. X-Men. The Marvel Wiki simply reads, quote, At some point, Guido returned to Earth. So yeah, (laughs) that's that's about that. I'm guessing they probably haven't come up with the story yet, Um, but that's what we know. As of now, I want to thank you so much for writing in to chat up that issue here. I knew as I was getting going to be getting closer to current that uh, the mailbag was going to dry up a bit because I know a lot of folks are waiting for Marvel Unlimited to decide to drop issues, and also uh, they're not collected in the uh, anthologies just yet. We're that far ahead. I can't believe we're getting this close to 
no longer X-lapsed, right? We we're going to be current. So I knew that the mailbag was going to dry up a little bit. It's really a case of, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm just happy anytime I get a message nowadays. It's really, really nice to be able to, uh, to chat. So uh, I want to thank you so much for that. And if anybody else out there would like to chat, please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could also talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic chatter needs, go over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find noise and sound. And uh, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love you to spread the word and share the show. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it really means a lot to me that you'd spend some of your day with me today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.